What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Well, good morning and welcome to our show, Rising. That's what it's called. It's marvelous today. <laughs> Brianna, what's going on? Well, Jelaine Maxwell was sentenced to 20 years in federal prison for carrying out a years-long scheme with Jeffrey Epstein to groom and sexually abuse underage girls. I know a lot of people were looking forward to that conclusion, and we'll get to, into the details of that later. And a new report finds that since 2000, nearly 100 former lawmakers have become lobbyists for countries like Saudi Arabia and China and Washington. Author Ben Freeman will be here to discuss that further. But first, we have to get to the big news of the day. On yesterday, January 6th testimony on Capitol Hill was particularly explosive, generated a lot of conversation. Former aide to Mark Meadows, who was the chief of staff, uh, his aide Cassidy Hutchinson gave testimony about former President Trump allegedly trying to grab the steering wheel of, his, of the SUV he was in. Uh, away from his Secret Service driver to go toward the Capitol on January 6th as the mayhem was unfolding. Let's watch. When the president got in the beast, he was under the impression from Mr. Meadows that the off-the-record movement to the Capitol was still possible and likely to happen, but that Bobby had more information. So once the president had gotten into the vehicle with Bobby, he thought that they were going up to the Capitol, and when Bobby had relayed to him we're not. We don't have the assets to do it. It's not secure. We're going back to the West Wing. The president had very strong, a very angry response to that. Um, Tony described him as being irate. The president said something to the effect of, I'm the effing president. Take me up to the Capitol now. To which Bobby responded, sir, we have to go back to the West Wing. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Engel. And Mr. when Mr. Renato had recounted this story to me, he had motioned towards his clavicles. However, the AP reports that the agent who was driving Trump's SUV, who Hutchinson mentioned in her testimony, Bobby Engel, and Trump's security official, Tony Ornato, are willing to testify that no agent was assaulted and Trump never launched for the steering wheel. Trump took to his app, Truth Social, saying he, quote, hardly knew Hutchinson, adding that her fake story about the steering wheel grab is sick and fraudulent, much like the committee itself. But over on Fox News, Brett Baer broke with Trump on the matter and put his faith in Hutchinson's testimony. We are now hearing from the former president on various posts where he questions her uh, accuracy. He goes after her directly, says he doesn't know who she is, and said he didn't lunge at the Secret Service agent in the Beast. Uh, that didn't happen. He says he didn't throw his lunch against the wall. That didn't happen, and that she's lying. Cassie Hutchinson is under oath on Capitol Hill. Uh, the president is on Truth Social. 
uh, making his statements. What was so compelling, I think, is, is how it was laid out. We always point out that there's not a pushback, and it would have been great to hear Jim Jordan or some congressman say some other angle to this, but the testimony in and of itself is really, really powerful. Yeah, and notably, it wasn't just Brett Baer. A number of people in Trump's administration seem to be coming forward on Twitter saying how you know credible they found Hutchinson to be, saying that they knew Hutchinson and that anybody who was trying to attack her was just afraid of the quality of her testimony. So I wasn't someone who was particularly gripped by these hearings and hadn't been following it very closely, but it did seem like yesterday's testimony was a turning point. Well, it, it was, it will not be a turning point, I don't, in that it's not going to change anything. I mean, in terms of doubt. public opinion, well, you don't think it'll matter at all? I don't know. Who has not made up their mind about what they think about Trump at this point? Um, there's already all the, if you're a detractor, a critic of Trump, uh, there's already all the evidence you could ever possibly want to make the moral judgment that this is a bad and irresponsible man who, who did not behave well before, during, and after January 6th. I, I don't know that I, I was looking for more evidence of that because it's already quite clear. What I don't think this will do is change one iota any uh, a fan of Trump or supporter of Trump or someone who had denied what had gone on on January 6th. I don't think that's going to change their minds at all. I don't actually see how the steering wheel, as colorful and interesting as the steering, steering wheel saga is, and then there was lots of discussion on social media. Well, because I think she said it was a limo, but it was actually an SUV. They're trying to, you know, put Trump in, where is he in the car in relation to the driver? Uh, yeah, it, does it sound like something Trump might do? Absolutely. Do I think necessarily was it happened? Maybe, maybe not. I don't think it actually matters. Um, and there's other stuff we want to yeah, get to. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually um, a lot less interested in the story of the steering wheel and, you know, the reference to ketchup we, there was earlier had to do with the fact the story that was told was that Donald Trump, in his anger, threw his lunch against the wall. Angry, petulant and child. There agreed. was ketchup <laughs> dripping down. But it's less those moments, which you may or may not read as consistent with Trump's personality, as we've heard him so far, as, as we've heard it described so far, and more that there are so many people that are close to the administration, have never until this point spoken out against the administration, people on Fox News who are very supportive of the president and rooting for the president, it seems, both from what we know publicly and what we are now hearing right. back from behind the scenes, who were frustrated with his behavior on that day, including, uh, was it Laura Ingrams, who was sending messages saying, please don't and go to Sean the Capitol. Hannity and Don Don Jr., right. like every, his closest supporters saying, and even family members to clear, on the day telling him, hey, this is really bad. This is going to ruin everything. But not everything. just this is really bad. Don't go to the Capitol. Right. You want it, he clearly was expressing to multiple people that he wanted to go to the Capitol. And they were specifically saying, do not do that because we will quote, well, this is not a direct quote, but that they will lose credibility mm -hmm. in, one, in, you know, in one phrasing or another with their criticisms of the Black Lives Matter protests that they had gotten a lot of political traction out of. They understood. It was clear that on that day they understood that Donald Trump going to the Capitol, showing that kind of solidarity with the protesters um, would, be a kind, would be incitement would be something that, if he did it, would uh, uh, rightly attract criticism for him having incited mm -hmm. those kinds of events. And we have a clip, I believe, of some of the testimony talking about the connection between Donald Trump and the Capitol, which is a, a new, a newish development. Yeah, can we play that? And you told us, Ms. Hutchinson, about particular comments that you heard while you were in the tent area. 
When we were in the offstage announce area tent behind the stage, he was very concerned about the shot, meaning the photograph that we would get because the rally space wasn't full. Um, one of the reasons, which I've previously stated, was because he wanted it to be full and for people to not feel excluded because they'd come far to watch him at the rally. Um, and he felt the mags were at fault for not letting everybody in. But another leading reason, and likely the primary reason, is because he wanted it full and he was angry that we weren't letting people through the mags with weapons, what the Secret Service deemed as weapons and our, our weapons. <laughs> But when we were in the offstage announced tent, I was part of a conversation. I was in the I was in the vicinity of a conversation where I overheard the president say something to the effect of, you know, I, I don't effing care that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me. Take the effing mags away. Let my people in. They can march to the Capitol from here. Let the people in. Take the effing mags away. Yeah, so do you want to lay out the what the incitement argument is? Yeah, there? so the argument is. There are people, it is known to the president at the time that there are people in the crowd with weapons. He believes that the weapons are not brought there to hurt him, so he doesn't feel threatened by them. And he knows that people want to go to the Capitol, and he's frustrated that they're not here uh, on the ellipse watching his remarks. So he says, let them in, let them in with the weapons, they're not here for me, and then we'll all go to the, they can march to the, the, the Capitol with the weapons afterward, showing people are arguing a disregard for the idea of armed people being allowed to, to go by metal detectors and other kind of security checks and go straight to the Capitol while armed because he perceives the threat not to be personal just on the Capitol and the government or however, however else you mm -hmm. want to characterize it. Right. So I was, uh, and, and other people are making the argument uh, you've just made. I read uh, da David French thought this made the case for incitement more plausible. Um, I got to say I'm not really persuaded by it. I don't think th since, you know, marching to the Capitol was not illegal and marching with weapons is not illegal. This is just First Amendment and Second Amendment together. I mean, you put them together, they don't suddenly become a problem. Going into the Capitol, it would, you know, store, attacking, smashing the windows, et cetera, that kind of stuff, a quarrel, fighting, quarreling with, uh, with police officers, trespassing, that was illegal. Doing it with weapons makes it even more illegal. But be, Trump didn't say, and I want to be very careful here, because obviously I think Trump's behavior was bad and morally deficient, and he should not be the president. But does it, is it legally meet the, from the legal standpoint, incitement? He didn't say, he told them to march to the Capitol, and they did have weapons, no, no, and no. he did know it, but he didn't say to go into the Capitol. I, I don't actually care but to argue the legal uh, definition of incitement. Okay. I don't care. I just want to have a moral conversation for a second. Oh, well, morally, I yes. Wa it's, I want to know what fault. the standard is. Is the standard that the President of the United States, Congress people, representatives, because we had a very different conversation yesterday on the show, is the standard now that if a Democratic president or congressperson has a crowd of people it knows are armed because its own secret service is telling them they are armed and that's why they can't get through to see their own speech because they can't make it through the security checks without giving up their weapons. If a Democratic president says, I want this armed crowd to march on the Capitol with me, we're going, hurrah, let's go. I, I want them to be armed marching on the Capitol. That is, that is the standard that we're now accepting is normal and good and right. No, it is bad and wrong and not good, and that person should not be the president, just as Donald Trump should not be the president. But they're talking about incitement. They're talking about trying to charge him with something, well, which I, I don't I, like. I'm just I don't 
he, he said, look, he said the closest you can get is, is the, in his speech, he says, to fight like hell. And maybe yeah. you can argue, well, if he knows they're armed and he says fight like hell, that is actually an encouragement to, do, to commit violence because he knows they're armed. I don't find that very persuasive. He also says, obviously, the kind of counterbalancing line to, that he wants them to march peacefully and patriotically. Uh, so I don't think this rises to the level of legal incitement, it, it, in, it, to the extent they're trying to find a way to prosecute him. Well, right. So I, I'm less concerned with that. I'm more concerned with the fact that the people who liked the president were closest to him obviously felt like he was close enough to incitement to be you know, yeah. panically, frantically trying to warn him away from doing what he wanted to do, which I think likely a, would have been dude. incitement if, if he had not... If he would be able to wrest the steering wheel allegedly away and get himself to the Capitol, or if he hadn't listened to the advice of all of these advisors who said to him, please don't go, you're going to be in really thorny legal trouble if you go, then we would be talking in a very different world. And the fact that he had to be potentially, arguably, allegedly, physically restrained from doing I think what no one could argue was, was an incitement, right? Because what was he going to do when he got to the Capitol? What was he going to say? Well, when he got I mean, to the but Capitol? at that point, it's, it's speculation. Maybe he was going to go yeah, to the Capitol maybe. and tell them to stop attacking it. Maybe, maybe and he it's only thought his presence there would de-escalate. Yeah, and it's only okay. <laughs> or move them away from the Capitol because he could go out and say, "Hey, look, well, I'm speaking." That, and they that is not. not what his advisors seemed to think was going to happen. And you know, his well, chief of his former chief of staff. Uh, Mick Mulvaney tweeted, quote, if the president knew protesters had weapons and still encouraged them to go to the Capitol, that is a serious problem. And you know, this this is where we are. I, I feel like the part of the issue is that. But that's exactly what I'm talking about. I don't think it's a serious. I don't think it's a serious legal problem. It's just a, right, it is a problem. But, but that's not what he said. And here, well, here's I think that's what he means. But here's what I'm resisting about the legal stuff. So much of the conversation about if something is technically illegal is being used to undermine a conversation about whether or not the Republican Party stood behind someone who, if left to his own devices, probably likely would have done things that were illegal and short of that were hugely antithetical to the idea of a peaceful transfer of power, democracy, all of the things that the Republican Party historically has said that they well, stood up for. Well, I agree with that. I'm not pushing back on that at all. Yeah, I... but that's, but that's a, it, it's important to sit in that space and not pretend that we can deflect and say, well, it wasn't, he's not going to jail, so it's not a story. No, it's a story regardless if he's going to jail, regardless if he's charged, regardless if anyone ever tries to charge him. Because this is a moment where many members of the Republican Party are finally saying, hey, I'm going to break with Trump and tell the truth about him. Even his own daughter in the course of, the, of this testimony has said, look, I was under the understanding because I had spoken to Bill Barr that the election wasn't stolen. And I didn't believe that the election was stolen. But all of these people have been covering for that narrative for a very long time in a way that's destructive. And at the same time as Trump is making these calls to um, the people who are supposed to be certifying the election and encouraging people to but find the all... votes and all of that kind of thing together, you would expect the Republican Party, for credibility reasons, to have been come out more vocally against this. And we have not seen that until now with this trickle through that's coming out of these, these hearings. Well, there's been a trickle of people who I, I think believe they can have successful kind of now uh, post-Trump professional careers or media careers as critics of Trump. You think um, that's the case with Trump's own daughter? Well, what has is, what is she said other than, you know, very quietly in hushed tones, yeah, I accept what Bill Barr said about the election, well, right? Yes, she's that, not, but like, she's huge, not out there ranting, railing against Trump. Of course. 
course not. But that that right. is huge in the context. No, of it's huge the that even the people closest lie. to him right know that the things he said right. were and, not true and knew it all along, and, and, and are it, now being forced to concede that that was. And the I case. do think it matters Absolutely. to people. I saw an interview. Someone was interviewing folks at a Trump rally, and they were talking to two young women, and they said, "Well, do you like Ivanka Trump?" And they're like, "Yeah, we love her." Do you know that she said this about the big lie and showed her showed the girls the video, the young women the video, but, and they were like, oh, well, I had, I mean, I well, had no but this, idea. But this is wish cast. It's not, it's not eroding. The only thing that is going to erode support for Trump is a more popular conservative figure, just like over the, right. over the course of and, time, and which what, is what DeSantis is doing. And what will but it's enable? not going to come from people going, oh, wow, Trump is. Really but, a liar. I don't like him anymore. Well, and what That's will not going to happen. What will enable another Republican figure to become more popular? What will enable them to draw contrast well, I think it would be Trump. great if the Republican Party disassociated themselves from Trump, to be clear. They should do that. But they're, they're just, they're not, they're not going to do that because of these hearings. Well, some people feel differently. There was an article recently uh, in The Atlantic that took account of all of the people from Trump world, not just Republicans, broadly speaking, not just the Liz Cheney's of the world, but people from Trump world that have been changing their minds because this is the first time there's this huge credibility gap right now in the media. And people, you know, don't believe what an MSNBC or CNN host is going to say about Trump, oftentimes with good reason. But now that they're seeing so many people who had the imprimatur of the Trump brand on them, who got stamped as Team Trump for years and years and years, coming out and saying how disappointed they are and what they're finding out about what was going on behind the scenes. People found Hutchinson's testimony to be very credible. And they're changing their mind. They are. Us sitting here, and look, I, I have participated in this as well. I have sat here and said, I don't think it's going to change anybody's mind. But that can be its own wish casting and self-fulfilling prophecy. My, my perception of the hearings for the first time was that even my mind has changed as to the importance of the hearing. And I think a lot of people, when they hear the facts, assuming that it will break through, which, you know, the first day of the hearings weren't aired on Fox. This seems to have gotten pickup and traction. You hear Brett Baer talking about it, et cetera. I think this, hearing their trusted Fox News hosts saying both on the screen that they're disappointed in Donald Trump and also hearing that they were trying to tell Trump on 1-6 not to behave the way that he wanted to behave is going to have an effect. When I, when I read what... Uh, what so many people in, in progressive media or the mainstream media, liberals, Democrats, the way they're talking about this, it looks to me like they're the ones doing the wish casting because they, sincere, I, I, they hope, they want, and they think because of this kind of procedure, there's going to be criminal charges for Trump. There's going to be a way to actually find, they want to get him, he's the villain, I understand that impulse, but it's not going to happen. We all already went through, and my, so my view is that the punishment for his behavior was to impeach him, and he should have been removed from office based on what he did, and he was essentially acquitted. So we're just going, like, that's just it. Well, let me you read can't just a, do it again. Let me tell you just a little bit about what this uh, Molly Jung Fast article argues. Well, this she is the says, most never Trump. Uh, of course, and I, I have a lot of Earth. criticisms of the Atlantic, generally speaking. But here's a quote from George Conway. He says to her, lots of Republicans want this to happen and they're secretly rooting for Liz. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell wants someone to stick the knife in Trump. He just doesn't want that person to be him. Conway has a point about Mitch McConnell, who in February 2021, according to the Courier-Journal, said in his speech, put another way, President Trump is still liable for everything he did while he was in office. Didn't get away with anything yet. 
but in December 2021 told CNN, but I do think we're all watching, as you are, what is unfolding on the House side, and it will be interesting to reveal all the participants involved. It does feel from that statement that he's keeping one foot in, one foot out, opening the door to the possibility that Trump doesn't Trump might go down still and that he doesn't want to go down in, with him. And from a leftist perspective, even if it's not about criminal charges, which, again, I think can be a distraction because they can be you can be acquitted like O.J. Simpson. Right. And it doesn't really mean anything about your they're not going to materialize. Right, But it doesn't mean anything. You know, the reputation will still stick if you are perceived to have done something wrong, regardless of the criminal charges. And as a leftist, my recommendation to the Democratic Party would be to not buy into this idea that it's not working, it doesn't matter, nobody cares about this, because that's the kind of thing that you would say if you wanted everybody to stop paying attention because you knew something was really unfavorable to you perception-wise. And if we live in a world where someone, where Marjorie Taylor Greene wants to pretend that AOC saying we got to fight for abortion rights in front of the Supreme Court is equivalent to promoting an insurrection, then it is incumbent on Democrats to make a strong case for why Donald Trump was trying to wrest the, <laughs> allegedly wrest the vehicle of his, of his car away from the Secret Service member and lead an armed mob to march to the Capitol. Because those are the facts that came out. We'll see if they're challenged. Republicans, a lot of conservatives, Trump allies, were invited to speak at the hearings and declined to do so. A lot of people who are close to him still did speak at the hearings, give testimony, and, and pled the fifth, pled the fifth, pled the fifth, which is a credibility determination that people are going to have to compare. Comparing someone like Hutchinson, who was vocal and forthright, to some of the Trump, uh, the Trump sycophants who decided not to say anything, even you, in their own defense. The, the, the people, the Republicans speaking out are still a tiny, tiny, tiny minority in most of Republican your, your world. Chief of staff says they believe right the testimony. World, right, we, yeah, uh, right, former Trump people. All uh, ready to turn on him, many of them. But in right-wing media, in general Republican circles, the impression of this is that this is all a nothing burger. This is all a pointless distraction. There's nothing. The Secret Service uh, agent uh, uh, spoke, you know, it contradicted the steering wheel thing, so it all might as well be thrown out. I'm not saying that's correct. I'm saying that's how it's being discussed, and it's a little bit of a fantasy to pretend, well, this is the thing. I don't. I don't think it's that's the thing. Again, I think that's a. I think that's a little bit of a. a, Not necessarily a straw man, but it's. It moves the goalpost. It's. If it it is not about whether or not someone is necessarily legally Mm -hmm. culpable. It's about whether or not they did something wrong, and whether the American people wants to continue voting for and supporting a party that would not only. um, Allow this behavior, but endorse and cover for this behavior for a year and a half. That is what's being litigated on our TV screens, not in a court of law. But it was already litigated. TV, it was already litigated. I'm sorry, he was impeached. Is, there's a statute of limitations. This is new well, information. He's not the anymore. No, Robbie, this is new information that's coming out. And people are going to continue to litigate this it's new information. It's not really. It's not super new information. It, it is, Robbie. It's still what happened. No, we know what happened. We've always known what happened. No, they, they Trump haven't. said things that were wrong about the election we, for weeks and months and then gave a speech to a crowd of angry and hostile people who then attacked the Capitol. And what no, came out yesterday is so getting, much more than that, Robbie. And you cannot disappear it away by oh, they had weapons? it's not. Well, that's fine. They were engaged in a First Amendment protected activity until they started in, breaking into the Capitol. And that's fine, whether or not they have weapons. Okay, again, you heard it here. Very interesting. You you heard it here. Of all, look, I am no friend of Joe Biden, but Joe Biden mixes his words up and it's sleepy Joe. He's see now he's gonna fall out of his chair. The Democratic Party is ruined. Donald Trump 
says, I want this armed crowd to walk on the Capitol, and it's a nothing burger. I think this contrast think, is no, exactly why so many people have lost, but I said he's, lost confidence I said he in our politics. I should have been removed as president think, and should not have been president. I think the, president the, again, so the what else failure to me? reckon really substantively with what this means about the Republican Party apparatus as a whole and their willingness to cover for this kind of behavior, that is, that is what's on the chopping block. And I think Republicans, like I said this yesterday, if Democrats would just apologize for their mistakes, I think a lot of people would accept that and think that was a real moment of integrity. And I think some Republicans are going to have to decide if they want to move forward into a new Republican Party, potentially with Ron DeSantis or other people who were not connected I, to I've this. been telling them to flee from Trump and, and if so, since 2015. If so, they're going right? to have to be like Brett Baer and have some reckoning. I don't think that saying, oh, it was a big nothing burger and pushing this under the rug and saying we knew of this already is going to restore the kind of faith and democracy that a lot of voters across the ideological spectrum are really looking for. But I'm sure we'll get into this more <laughs> uh, in the future. And Well, I'm looking forward to what's on your radar, Brianna. <laughs> Coming up. Brianna, what's on your radar today? Well, Robbie, today I want to talk about some unenumerated rights. Look, the right to own a gun should not be punted to the states. Why not? Because it is a federally protected constitutional right. I think we can all agree here. No matter what the legislature in any given state believes, the Second Amendment is clear that the right to bear arms is not up to the states. Now, no right is absolute. States may constrain certain rights to protect competing rights and liberty interests, but to do so, they typically must prove the government's interests are narrowly tailored and that any law abridging protected rights achieve a compelling governmental interest. This is the basic framework of constitutional law. The right to free speech is guaranteed by the First Amendment, so no matter what any particular state legislature might think, no state can abridge speech rights unless, again, there is a compelling government interest in, say, preventing incitements to violence. And the law is narrowly tailored to meet said interest. There are different tests for commercial speech versus inflammatory speech, etc. But on the whole, even though the Supreme Court has upheld certain time, place, and manner restrictions on protests and the like, the fundamental right is protected no matter what state you live in. Now, the rationale for constitutional rights is this. Some things are considered to be so important so fundamental that the federal government will protect you against incursions by the state. This is true in some cases, even if those rights aren't specifically enumerated or written out in the Constitution. On multiple occasions, the Supreme Court has extended federal protection to rights by reading those rights into the text of existing constitutional amendments. Now, this is, of course, a fiction of sorts. The Constitution doesn't mention and couldn't begin to conceptualize many contemporary rights or the world that gave birth to them. Thomas Jefferson couldn't fathom the Internet or various speech concerns that arise therefrom. The Founding Fathers writing the Constitution in the late 18th century could not have considered weapons as powerful as machine guns. They only had musket technology back then. Bullets, as we know them, weren't invented until 1832. But given the difficulty in amending the Constitution, people on both sides of the aisle have accepted the necessity of reading certain rights into the Constitution, lest we be governed by the dead hand of founding fathers who, though wise in some respects, lack the understanding necessary to protect all the interests that exist in today's world. Notably, the Constitution did not protect the rights of women or minorities. When Abigail Adams asked John Adams to remember the ladies in drafting the laws, he replied, I cannot help but laugh 
we know better than to repeal our masculine systems. <laughs> And when the Supreme Court upheld a state law requiring a fugitive enslaved man, Dred Scott, to be returned to his enslaver for a life of bondage, it's not surprising that there was nothing explicit in the written text of the Constitution to save him. In fact, the only constitutional text that explicitly mentioned black people, quote, treats them as persons whom it was morally lawful to deal in as articles of property and to hold as slaves. And so, in the Dred Scott case, the Supreme Court held that, quote, any person descended from Africans, whether slave or free, is not a citizen of the United States, according to the U.S. Constitution. And thus, they could claim no freedom. Now, as you remember from history class, or maybe you were never taught, this decision escalated tensions between the slaveholding South and the North because some people believed that despite the text of the Constitution, human beings even black ones, have rights that should be protected by the federal government. In 1863, about six years after the Dred Scott case, Abraham Lincoln, of course, issued the Emancipation Proclamation, an act that was not constitutional and which, which went directly against the holding of the Supreme Court. It changed the legal status of enslaved black people from slave to free. Now, again, the Constitution did not explicitly grant rights to black people and, in fact, referenced them only as fractions of human beings for census purposes. We probably wouldn't have even gotten that much notice if Southern states didn't need to gin up their population numbers to secure more representation in the House. After all, in 1860, Mississippi was 55% black. And yet, despite there being no textual support for it, in the Emancipation Proclamation, Lincoln claimed constitutional authority. The Emancipation Proclamation read, I do order and declare that all persons held as slaves within the designated states and parts of states are and henceforthward shall be free. Upon this act, sincerely believed to be an act of justice warranted by the Constitution upon military necessity, I invoke the considerate judgment of mankind in the gracious favor of Almighty God. The Emancipation Proclamation was never challenged in court. We had a war instead. The North won, and the issue of whether it was technically constitutional was sublimated to the moral question of whether it's right to keep another human being as chattel. And most of us think that was a good outcome. The right to be free from slavery is probably the most extreme example of a fundamental right not explicit in the Constitution being read into it, but it's hardly the only one. Because the Constitution left so many people out and because the Founding Fathers failed to predict penicillin or cars or bullets or women's equality, the Supreme Court has been flexible in using the Founding Fathers' words as a guiding principle, but not a strict limit. In fact, the Founding Fathers wanted this. They were clear that the Bill of Rights did not constitute a full list of all those rights that were constitutionally protected. The Ninth Amendment makes clear that the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. In other words, the Bill of Rights is a partial list of rights, not the whole thing. In some ways, the Ninth Amendment may be the most important one. Imagine if the only constitutional rights that were protected on the federal level were those rights that are explicitly enumerated in the Constitution. The state would have an extraordinary amount of authority to regulate your most intimate conduct, well beyond the bounds of what we today consider to be freedom. Consistent with the Ninth Amendment, the Supreme Court has found, for example, that the right to travel, the right to vote, and the right to keep personal matters private are all constitutionally protected, 
and could not be abridged by the states, even though they were not specifically enumerated. Now, in overturning Roe, conservative justices have questioned the right to privacy on which the right to choose was founded. This implicates not just a woman's right to make medical decisions with her doctor, but also your right to marry who you want, regardless of their race or gender. It protects your right to engage in consensual sex acts in your home. It's the right to be left alone. It's a fundamentally libertarian right that resists intrusions by the government into your home, into your family life, or into your bedroom. The Supreme Court first established the right to privacy in Griswold v. Connecticut. That case protected the right of married couples to buy contraceptives. Now, to be clear, there's nothing in the Constitution that prevents states from interfering in a married couple's ability to do their own family planning. Based on the text of the Constitution, if California wanted to pass an anal-only statute, they could. But citing the Ninth Amendment, which again references unenumerated rights, the court defended what most of us understand should be a freedom protected at the national level. Think about what it would mean if we didn't have those privacy rights. In Griswold, Connecticut had tried to shut down a Planned Parenthood in the state using a 19th century law banning the dissemination of contraceptives. The state arrested Griswold and a medical doctor at the clinic. They were tried in a one-day bench trial, meaning no jury, and they were fined. They were literally locked up for handing out condoms. This is a shocking incursion into private affairs that no state should be entitled to commit. And the Supreme Court agreed, holding that they were dealing with a, quote, right of privacy older than the Bill of Rights, older than our political parties, older than our school system. Marriage is a coming together for better or for worse, hopefully enduring, and intimate to the degree of being sacred. It is an association that promotes a way of life, not causes, a harmony of living, not political faiths, a bilateral loyalty, not commercial or social projects. Yet it is in an association for as noble a purpose as any involved in our prior decisions. The choice to get an abortion is a similarly private and sacred association between doctor and patient, as is the choice to marry someone of the same sex or a different race, as Clarence Thomas presumably understands. Yet in his concurrence, he opens the door to revisiting all the privacy cases except the one that affects his own mixed-race union. But here's a reminder. The court in Loving Virginia protected Thomas's right to marry his white wife in part because it was horrified by the idea that the state should be intruding into bedrooms to uphold anti-miscegenation laws. Just as the court in Griswold was horrified at the idea that the state should have to enter into, literally, the marital bedroom in order to enforce rules around the sexual behavior of husband and wife. That being the case, it's confusing to me how some principled conservatives can defend this decision. Dobbs, federal laws are there to protect basic fundamental values while allowing latitude to the states to provide more, not less. The Founding Fathers wanted a federal system to avoid tyranny, not to create carve-outs where tyranny is acceptable on a local state-by-state level, whether it's slavery or banning abortions or banning guns or contraceptives. The point was to use states as laboratories for new ideas and programs, not to inflict old ideas on families who should be entitled to make their own choices. 
Conservatives often say we should kick the issues to the states. Let states decide. But why stop at the state level? If allowing choice on a more individualized level is a good thing, why not let families decide, individuals decide? Why advocate for policing of intimate behavior at the state level if tyranny is the fear? Now, some conservatives will say that protecting unborn babies is a legitimate state interest that must also be protected. On its face, I think this is suspicious. If you think abortion is murder, why would you leave it to the states to decide whether or not they should do a murder? If you would be, in fact, pushing for a federal ban on abortion, something that's unpopular among conservatives now, but which is being discussed among some social conservatives, like Ben Shapiro, who seems eager to impose his own depressing, dry marital practices on others. <laughs> The leave it to the states argument is inconsistent with the moral argument against baby killing, and the federal ban argument is inconsistent with the libertarian belief in individual freedoms. Moreover, there are no babies in question here. I have got to remind everyone, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the case that followed Roe and the one that's really at issue, protects the absolute right to have an abortion only prior to a fetus's ability to survive outside of the womb. States can and have regulated abortions after the point of viability, when a fetus might more accurately be described as something we think of as a baby. But despite fear-mongering about late-term abortions, this new opinion is about making it possible for states to ban abortion altogether, even in the first few weeks. It's not, like Rowan Casey, an opinion about protecting a range of choices that individuals in states can avail themselves of. It is instead, like Dred Scott, a case that limits liberty rights and instead allows states to enact tyranny on a state-by-state -state basis. In Dred Scott, the court protected the state's right to enslave human beings. In Dobbs, the court is protecting the state's right to force a woman to give birth, even if it kills her. It's time as a country that we really nail down the difference between positive freedoms and negative freedoms. Freedoms to versus freedoms from. Freedom from state action, that's what I want and what you should be fighting to protect. The right to make medical decisions without the police banging down your door to arrest you or your wife or your daughter or your physician. Now, many people have been making comparisons between Dred Scott and Plessy v. Ferguson and Roe, some in good faith and some in bad. Senator John Cornyn went viral in a bad way with a tweet that some people argued recommended a return to segregation since it compared Dobbs to Brown v. Board. Now, it's clear to me that Cornyn was not arguing that Brown v. Board, which overruled Plessy v. Ferguson and thus outlawed, outlawed segregation, was bad law. His point obviously was the opposite, that sometimes overruling precedent is a good thing. Indeed, he's right. So how can you tell the difference as a freedom-loving conservative or libertarian? Well, as a libertarian, you should cheer when federal protections expand your rights and choices and be concerned when they limit them. Desegregation ended artificial limits on free association and created more freedom for more people. Those who didn't want to associate with black people could, and some continue to make that choice. Similarly, Roe meant more freedom of choice for more people. Women who did not want to seek abortions, who, who find the practice immoral for religious reasons, could decline and can decline abortions after Roe. Roe wasn't a law forcing any kind of behavior, like Dred Scott was. 
After those cases were decided, Americans can make their own choices. Freedom of association, medical freedom. This is what's at stake. But conservative politicians have often shown a great deal of inconsistency on that score. Just look at how conservatives have repeatedly intervened when states have decided to allow physician-assisted suicide. That's because none of this is about states' rights or individual rights. It brings me no pleasure to point out that this is about a religious minority's desire to control the behavior of those who do not subscribe to their spiritual belief system. Six of the six justices in the Dobbs majority are Catholic. And though these opinions are scrubbed of doctrine, it's no accident that they keep deciding cases in a way that's consistent with their own religious beliefs, not with the law. And if there's one thing that's quite clear in the Constitution, it's that no religion should be established above all others. It's literally the First Amendment. Now, pointing out a politician's hypocrisy can be boring and redundant. They're all hypocrites, Republicans and Democrats alike. But it is important sometimes to unpack hypocrisy to clearly see what the true motivations are here and evaluate what side you really want to be on. I want to make just one more thing clear. I personally don't think the Founding Fathers should be followed blindly. They were flawed human beings who did not consider me to be a person with rights under the Constitution, either as a woman or as a descendant of slavery. So I take them and their proclamations with a grain of salt. But that doesn't mean that certain Enlightenment principles, like non-establishment of religion, shouldn't be deeply treasured, or that unenumerated rights should be dismissed just because men of 200 years ago happened not to write them down. It felt like a subtweet. <laughs> of who? A 16 and a half minute subtweet of me. Well, what, what, what is uh, your take, Rob? No, I, I'm, look, I want all rights decided at the individual level as well. Full stop. All civil rights, civil liberties, uh, economic rights too. I think you should so be deciding on, at the individual let's level. Let's stay on row for a second. Does that mean that you are, are you surprised at all? by what I perceive to be a kind of ideological inconsistency where people who want a lot of personal freedoms and also are very frustrated about the mask mandates and masking and such seem not to have that same energy. I think this is true of conservatives, sure. But it does not, just because you can think that the Constitution does not necessarily protect a right while still thinking that should be a right and that we ought to protect it. But just, I, I can't pretend it says something I don't think it says. But that's, that's kind of the point of this radar, right? That there is an amendment for this. It's mm -hmm. called the Ninth Amendment. And it was the Founding Fathers anticipating that people were going to look at this list of amendments in the Constitution. They were going to look at the Bill of Rights and say, oh, this is it. This is the whole shebang. If you claim anything else is a right, then you're, you're off your rocker. The Founding Fathers said, no, no, no. This is what we've come up with. We're in a little bit of a hurry. We're about to do a revolution, you know, but like, or, you know, we're trying to get a country together. But, you know, the door is open for other rights to be included. And over the course of American history, people with different ideological perspectives have been very happy to read in more into the Constitution on the basis that they understand some things are so crucial, so foundational, that obviously they should be protected on the federal level against incursions by the state, including any law that would have people 
opening up people's marital bedroom, peeking under the sheets, as did happen to the, the plaintiffs um, in Loving v. Virginia at one point, right? That right. we don't want that kind of world. And it's, it's found a privacy right. It's found all kinds of rights that could not have been contemplated I mean, in, by the founders. In, in Robbytopia, you would have so much rights, it would sicken you. you, you're, you there will be absolutely no state intrusion on any front, uh, COVID-wise, personal liberty-wise, sexuality-wise, uh, economically. It would be, be great. You'd, You'd be welcome anytime, Brianna. You'd think it was fantastic. So, so what do you make but of this? That, but we would just we would set up the society that way. We'd write it all into the founding documents. We would constrain there's, the government. No... We'd say it can't do anything. It's ours are ours are a little dicier than that. Robbie, the argument is dicier. that there's there's no ability to ever write it all into the founding documents. You're never going to be anticipate able to anticipate all of the things that are going to come up. I mean, they up. did change it 27 times They're going to come in the And that's another part of this that I didn't get into because I know how much you become frustrated by my lightly radars. Well, but there we got is, a whole there, show to produce I mean, here. <laughs> part of the Glenn issue. Maxwell's just waiting for us later <laughs> in the show. <laughs> she has time in her hands, believe me. So, you know, part, part of the issue is that we do have this constitution, this gridlock where... It's very, very difficult to amend the Constitution in a way that I don't think that the founders necessarily anticipated either. So that being the case, no one has any issue saying, well, the Constitution obviously doesn't say everybody gets a machine gun, but we're willing to read that into it. All I'm saying is if we're willing to read in that the Second Amendment encompasses all of these kinds of weapons that none of the founding fathers should, could have anticipated, and, and given the founding fathers' myopia on some of these issues that, frankly, were issues at the time that they were writing the Constitution, like the rights for slaves, right, like the rights for women, et cetera, as you saw Abigail Adams be like, hey, honey, what about me? And he was like, he thought about it and said, nah, girl. <laughs> so, like... The fact that they are making those kind of choices then I don't think should constrain our ability to have these freedoms now. And that's all I wanted to address because I do see a lot of people saying, well, there is no right to abortion in the Constitution. And if you want to play that game and say the only thing the government can protect you from against tyranny from the states is these little handful of bullet points, then you're basically begging for a world where you're more oppressed, not less. Well, we got to leave it there and we'll have more rising right after this. Well, yesterday, the Daily Mail reported that President Biden did know about Hunter's business dealings with a Chinese oil giant, the CEFC. As we've discussed here before, files on Hunter's laptop disclosed by the Daily Mail show that Hunter struck a multi-million dollar deal with the CEFC after touting his family's connections. President Biden allegedly spoke to his son about this 2018 New York Times story that detailed Hunter's deals with the Chinese criminal dubbed the spy chief of China. The Daily Mail even obtained a voicemail off Hunter's iPhone from Joe Biden telling his son that he's, quote, in the clear in regards to that now infamous New York Times story. Let's take a listen. Hey, Palace Dad, it's 815. Um on uh, Wednesday night, if you get a chance, give me a call. Not, nothing urgent. Just want to talk to you. I thought the article, at least the thing on online, that's going to be printed tomorrow in the Times, was good. I think it's clear. And uh, anyway, um, if you get a chance, give me a call. I love you. This is a major pivot for the president, who's denied knowing anything about Hunter's dealings for years. And now calls from Republican members of Congress for the president to come clean. While former DOJ prosecutor Jim Trustee said the voicemail is a huge integrity test for the FBI and the attorney general. Hmm. So, I mean, I guess, though, Biden could still say, well, when he, he didn't have any knowledge of 
Hunter's dealings, which we don't, I don't know how plausible that actually is. This doesn't, he could say this doesn't necessarily contradict that because, well, he just read about whatever was in the time, just like I, just like you or I don't know anything about Hunter Biden's dealings beyond what we've read in the media. Um, and, uh, but I guess if he says, seems like you're in the clear, he, that could still be well, that could be also just mean it looks like the article yeah. doesn't indict you, doesn't yeah. make you seem culpable. So I, I don't know how much this really changes anything. It's, it's, obviously it was always, the question is how much Joe Biden knows uh, or knew about Hunter Biden's attempts to, or how, how much of a participant he was in Hunter's efforts to, you know, lobby interest on, on Hunter's own behalf and with Chinese and other influence, which Hunter was clearly trying to do yeah. and then made it sound the big man, et cetera. You know, I have a, a close, I have a, a phone yeah, line the, to the big man, Yeah, but uh, I, we haven't yet, you know, followed, the other shoe has not dropped. Yeah. The problem with this story is that, you know, it was presented in the context of an electoral choice between a president who has shown uh, shameless levels of nepotism toward his own family and a presidential candidate in Joe Biden, who there's some also of the same, nepotism. right? Like so, so the <laughs> who part did the I think, same thing. yeah. So I think that part of the the a problem role in the in the what it was uh, Amtrak, right? That was a uh, yeah. I mean, he's gotten job after job for his nepotism. entire life just for being Joe Biden's kid. Now for the no question is whether or not Joe Biden participated in that, helped. I feel like in the Amtrak situation, he got a boost. Whether or not. He was, yeah. you know, participant Isn't in the situation. Isn't Joe Biden situation. Amtrak's number one customer or something? Yeah, he's, the plaque. Actually, the, I think the only time I saw him in real life was on the Amtrak. I saw him, uh, I saw him on the Amtrak once. Did you say anything? Did you uh, ask for a photograph? I, did you I, get a I, selfie? <laughs> I did not. I think I was so furious about having to wear a mask. No. It was go, recently. Going to go off on a tangent. It was, uh, no, I'm, now I'm getting my stories mixed up. It was, uh, it might have been while he was vice president. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I had to cover a story early in my journalism career I don't, I don't in Delaware. I don't look fondly on my time spent on the Amtrak, nor does <laughs> well, I, anyone I else. Do, I, do, I actually do love taking, taking the train. What? But, um, I had to go to Delaware for a story, and, you know, they have the plaque in the Delaware train station. It's like the Joe R. Biden train station. It's very clear when you get off. He's, you know, obviously very proud of that. But the point is that I think a lot of people didn't pay as much attention to the story on, on both on the on the Democratic side, at least, because it was like, what are you going to do with this? I don't have another option. And I think that's a real indictment of our political system and the candidates that are offered up for us to choose from, that this has become, nor, not become normalized, it's always been the way things are, but it's frustrating that even when these stories become public, there isn't any kind of a, a, apologia, no contrition. Um, right. It just seems like the new status quo. Well, Joe Biden is the ultimate political insider, been in D.C. for, you know, so decades and decades and decades and decades, uh, long time to accrue influence, et cetera, to help out uh, people like his son, Hunter. Then on the other hand, you have Trump, the consummate political outsider, but also close to the levels, uh, the levers of power and able to do. Hey, son of law, fix yeah. Israel, Palestine. Yeah. Um, it, <laughs> yeah. The, the Biden Trump kind of. Uh, demonstration of the way just corruption pervades the upper levels of our politics, of our corporate culture, and the, and the way those two things work together. Yeah, I mean, that's why, sorry to say, a lot of people were first drawn to Trump because they felt like he was an outsider. He proved that he had 
insider <laughs> instincts. And then that's the same reason a lot of the people in 2016 were drawn to Bernie Sanders, because despite being in Congress for a long time, he had really framed himself as a political independent, had picked the kind of fights that made him perceived to be an independent by other people in Congress who knew that he wasn't going to kind of bend the knee to whatever industry uh, interest group there was. Isolating himself in Vermont was a way to protect himself from some of the shenanigans that go on in other bigger states where there's less of that kind of live for your die kind of frontiersman mentality. And, and it worked. And a lot of people were really hopeful that someone, you know, we tested Trump, but that didn't work. But a lot of people wanted to see what would happen if a Bernie style figure got into Congress. And I'm curious whether someone like, I don't know, an Andrew Yang or Marianne Williamson will be able to capture that same kind of energy. People have been talking about a number of other celebrities running. I saw Howard Stern made a tweet the other day that said maybe it's time for him to put his hat in the ring because he's so frustrated over all of this Roe v. Wade stuff. <laughs> is, is that what's going to save us, Robbie, another guess. outsider? I think so. I mean, <laughs> we've got to tear all these systems down, not replace them with new different, more outsider people who are going to be unique and interesting because the system corrupts and, and wears them down. I mean, I'm, I tend destroy to destroy the system. F FDR, the most popular president of all time, got in there and well, gutted, and gutted, gutted the government. Guy. He gutted the government and got, he really did drain the swamp and provided the example that a lot of other people have been talking smack about. I like Calvin Coolidge. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll have to do a panel at some point. On favorite. Ranking uh, We president. were doing, um, uh, me, Ryan, and Kim were doing uh, presidential uh, trivia, presidential history trivia on the show for a while because a viewer, a fan of the show, sent us a book he had written about trivia, uh, American uh, presidential trivia, and we were, there were some tough questions. Uh, we were, so we, <laughs> Who we was winning? Ryan? Of, we didn't, uh, Ryan knows a, Ryan knows a lot. Very of, Ryan's very knowledgeable. Ryan is very knowledgeable. Kim was on the delay, so it was really hard for her to Not chime very. in remotely. Yeah. She was, uh, she was feeling the system was unfair, well, look, which it was. Well, look, we, we just talked uh, in the, at the top of the show about whether or not you know, the new revelations coming out of the 1-6 hearings are going to have any effect on the Republican voter, um, on the generalized attitudes toward jo Donald Trump. You seem to think right, that My view pretty... being no. I also don't think, by the same token, I don't think this. I think this story, the Hunter Biden story, interests people because it's salacious. It involves drugs and sex and prostitutes and some funny images. Uh, but what matters to voters, I, I don't think is actually this. It's that might also be true, but I, I would similarly say with this, as with the, um, the Donald Trump stuff, I don't want that to be the case. I don't think it's right for these things not to matter. I think it ruins us all when these things don't matter. And if there, people are serious about there being a 2024 challenger to Joe Biden, I would argue that they should start sticking the landing on why this story is relevant to who Joe Biden is as a candidate, not just in a salacious way, not in let me just post pictures of your son dealing with addiction. That's not the point at all. But to make a case about corruption that, frankly, Bernie never made. People on the campaign started to make that case. Does that ever teach out? Very... He didn't really make it against Hillary either. I remember well, his line, wait, 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 I'm wait, sick of hearing about Hillary's emails. Well, that's remember true. that? He, he pulled some punches. But specifically, Zephyr Teachout, who was you know, a surrogate for the campaign, wrote an article in The Guardian about like detailing as someone with an expertise uh, in a background in corporate corruption about why Joe, uh, Joe Biden should be characterized as such. 
and Bernie wouldn't stand by it and, and threw the article under mm. the bus. And I do think that people have to start, if there is any kind of sincere populist movement in this, this country from the right or left, they have to be able to make the case about why this is a problem, why Trump's corruption is a problem, and not take it to the salacious level. Nobody cares about the P-tape aspect or your son is addicted to drugs aspect. Talk about the catering to influence and buying influence and what that means and connected to our geopolitical right. situation in Ukraine and what's going on around the world. Because I think the American people really do care about In a way that stuff. hurts the American people exactly. or is indifferent to their interests. It's exactly. not, right, it's not influence peddling to get Americans access to more oil or, 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 or better or better price or sure. some sane foreign policy. It's influence peddling for no other reason than personal enrichment, sure. even if it comes at the expense of the American people. Absolutely. As we've seen time and time again in these dealings, both legitimate and illegitimate, both above uh, uh, above the fray and, and, and then in secret, that are that are bad deals that hurt the country, that are not yeah. in the country's best interest whether it's our announced Ukraine policy or whether what, what we're doing covertly with Ukraine. It's, yeah. it's, not, it's not good. Yeah. Well, Team Rising will join us next. Stick around for that. A California budget deal between Governor Gavin Newsom and state lawmakers would provide most California taxpayers with hundreds of dollars in rebates to alleviate economic hardship from inflation. The $300 billion framework would include diesel tax suspension and $1,050 rebates. Hmm. Newsom says that's more money in your pocket to help you fill your gas tank and put food on the table. Joining us to discuss is editor-in-chief of The Real News, Max Alvarez, and Newsweek contributor Denise Long. Welcome to you both. Good morning. All right, Denise, this sounds pretty good to me. What, if anything, are the downsides of this? Well, I'd certainly have to take a look at how this impacts the economics of the state overall. I believe they had a ginormous uh, surplus, if you will, from quite a ways ago. You know, I'm not opposed to states using their excess funds to actually support and undergird the citizens, considering uh, in general and considering the times uh, we are in right now. I'm curious about the extent to which these funds will be provided to uh, undocumented migrants and illegal aliens and the uh, impact that that could have on uh, citizens and taxpayers overall. What about the argument that if you live in California, if undocumented people are unable to get to the jobs working for inevitably documented people, or if they are uh, dependent on the social safety net as a consequence of not being able to afford uh, high cost groceries and goods, that if they are uh, let's say precarious and more inclined toward crime or any of the arguments that you have, that it ultimately inerts the benefit of society for everyone in the state to be taken care of. And that's why these kind of programs in progressive states like California sometimes are extended to everyone who lives in the state. Yeah, so my stance there is like the Honorable uh, Barbara Jordan from Texas, who was commissioner of uh, the Jordan Commission. And what she made clear, and at a time when our government had a common sense approach to immigration, what she made clear is that you are here illegally and you are thus entitled to no benefits. And I don't see how in, in, in this day and age where we had, we're on record to break 2 million encounters at our Southern border, um, how we can incentivize illegal migration to the United States. Mm. Max, what do you think about this plan from Newsom? In a way, right, he's kind of upstaging, I guess, uh, the 
national Democratic leaders like Joe Biden himself who are not uh, delivering for what many uh, working people are struggling with, the higher prices of everything, uh, is Newsom kind of providing a model that Democrats should heed? Well, I mean, I don't think it's hard to upstage Biden and the National Democrats right now. I could do that by going and singing the Temptations on the street corner right now. I mean, like, I, I, the, please, there are a couple please be our I, guest. <laughs> catch, yeah, catch, catch me out in front of City Hall later today, Baltimoreans. But um, two things that I would say. One, uh, I don't know how this quickly became a conversation about, um, you know, illegal immigration. All I would say is that, you know, what I think defines, you know, like me more as a leftist is that I am always looking to punch up, not punch down. Punching down at illegal immigrants, undocumented folks is a tried and tested method to get working people to see one another as the enemy instead of looking at the very obvious bandits who are ripping us off. Whatever, you know, you are saying, like whatever uh, freeloading um, the right says is happening on account of undocumented migrants pales in comparison to the the amount of money that corporations and the wealthy get to steal from the public coffers and stash in their pockets it's not even close so unless we're talking about that the whole like you know oh is this going to go to undocumented folks is an absolute bs point also undocumented folks pay taxes so let's shut up about that crap already let's keep our eye on the ball secondly no, we i won't. would say <laughs> Well, you're wrong. You're making a dumb, bad argument. That's what I would say to any working person who's watching here. They're trying to distract you from the people well, who are actually for the left. Off. Well, let's uh, well, Max, uh, Max, uh, well, uh, Max finish, and then we'll let you respond, Denise. Yeah, because I represent working people who are listening to people like you tell them, you know, the wrong thing. I'm a working class person and it's not one crime over the other. It is both. When we talk about the fact that people are here illegally and they do get special set-asides that American citizens do not get, that needs to be addressed. And when we talk about the fact that we have corporatocracy and oligarchs who are ripping off, as you say, the American public, that needs to be addressed as well. One does not wash the other. Well, Denise, what about this well, argument not, that there's a one is like like astronomically bigger than the other. So you're talking about like our roof just but collapsed. But I'm going to go focus on this leaky faucet in the bathroom. Like it's really no comparison here. That's your the other assessment. thing I would say, the other thing I would say is that there's actually a really you know big opportunity here for anyone who wants to take it uh, on the Democratic or the Republican side, because what we saw under COVID-19 under Trump was actually incredibly paradigm shifting. If you look at the way the government responded to a crisis uh, first at COVID-19 and compare that to the 2008 financial crash, what Trump and then Biden did was they actually injected money directly into people's pockets. And for a moment, we saw pe millions of people get lifted out of poverty. We saw working people have a little more security to actually stand up for themselves, quit their jobs if they didn't like them, try to use unionize if they could or go on strike you know like there was a really big kind of um social paradigm that was shifted and now like we're, we're trying to kind of claw that I mean, we back. also so lined delta's 
pockets, right? There, you know, there was there was some industry specific bail. Right. I mean, that's that's how they were able to get the good stuff passed. That's how, unfortunately, this country often works to to get any of the corporatists on either side of the aisle to sign on to a lot of these policies. They tend to be paired with corporate giveaways. I would much prefer a world where that wasn't the case, obviously. But I think Max's point is still true. We did see, uh, you know, child poverty cut in half, all of these enormous metrics uh, going up that people, you know, have been sitting around philosophizing about for years. Well, how do we bring poverty down? How do we do this on the other? The answer was to put money in people's pockets and give them an ability to sustain themselves. That's what appears to be happening in 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 uh, California right now to some extent. And it's curious, you know, Denise, you know, why to this 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 question that Max is, are, is, is raising, even if you do believe that on a philosophical level, people who are undocumented don't get, shouldn't get uh, benefits, can e- e- get any benefits, even though you might say, oh, they pay seven billion dollars into Social Security that they don't get to take advantage of, even though they contribute to their society, the society that we all live in together, even if it inerts the benefit of society as a whole for them not to be struggling destitute, that they, on a, as a matter of principle, shouldn't be getting money. Do you think there's something to Max's point about what we center in these conversations if we really do want to bring a, a working class coalition together, given that so many people who are documented do have undocumented relatives, friends, people they know and love who might be alienated from a working class movement by that sort of language when there are these huge opportunities to talk about the much larger theft from society that's happening at the very top? I cannot imagine how setting a standard that you must tow a single line in any way advances a working class coalition. The vast majority of America is working class, right? The middle class has been gutted in this country in large part because of trade deals and outsourcing and the like. And let's not negate the reality of the ways that illegal immigration, as well as outsourcing and legal migrants, right, actually do affect the wages of American citizens. We have elected officials like uh, Senator Durbin, who says that depression of Americans' wages is actually a benefit to them. We can't have a working class coalition if we're only going to bring forth the points that advance a particular narrative. We have to talk about the whole thing, and all of it needs to be centered in immigration, legal and illegal, outsourcing, all of the things, including corporate uh, profiteering, is a part of it, all of it. Otherwise, we're not having a real conversation. Max, what do you say to this argument? Because I've heard some leftists talk about this. There are debates about the extent to which immigration, undocumented or otherwise, has a negative effect on the American worker. But most, the most credible argument to that end is that there is a at the very bottom tier of the American workforce, people who are very marginal, marginal and represents a very small fraction of American workers, there is a, a somewhat of a, a negative effect caused by undocumented immigrants. Do you think as a left party, uh, a working class movement, you have to at least acknowledge and, and have a conversation about that, even if your response to that reality wouldn't be to have draconian immigration policy, it might be, I don't know, a a different kind of distributive policy. I mean, do you think that the left does itself a disservice by not acknowledging that reality or at least that perception? 
Yeah, I mean, like, you know, for any issue, if we are pretending it doesn't exist, uh, we are not being, you know, honest and, and trying to actually come to solutions. Here's what I would say to everyone listening. Don't listen to me. Don't listen to anyone on this panel. As I've been saying since I started my podcast years ago, listen to the workers. I've interviewed hundreds and hundreds of them. You can go hear their thoughts on this, on my podcast, on the real news, in my book, right? You know, like, and what work, the thing I would say is it's actually not that hard. Working people are smart. They're not dumb. They know how the bosses pit working people against one another, either by unionized workers against non-unionized workers, citizens against non-citizens, black workers against white workers, right? They have been dividing and conquering us for as long as this country has existed and even before that. And here's the hopeful thing, is that if you have the honest conversation that we're talking about having here, which it is wrong to presume that people aren't having that, Labor's been having this conversation for a long time. Mm -hmm. And if you actually look at unions like Labor's Local 79 in New York, they are showing the path forward. They are unionized citizen workers who are currently standing up for undocumented workers who are being exploited and taken advantage of by union busting contractors in the city. They are going to bat for them. They even created a fund to make sure that undocumented workers could recoup, you know, benefits that the rest of us were able to during the pandemic. Um, but undocumented workers were not because they know when you know the business class and you know right wing and liberal politicians who champion them target immigration as the issue uh, hurting workers and suppressing wages working people know that what that means is that they do not want to stop illegal immigration they want to enshrine a permanent class a permanent underclass of undocumented workers that they can constantly exploit if you look at the data if you look at the research that is what happens even under trump's regime they did not like really push out of uh, the 10 million plus undocumented workers who are already here. They just made it harder for those workers to speak up on the job. They made it easier for bosses to exploit them. And they made it easier for companies and businesses to undercut other workers by relying on undocumented workers. So there is a left argument to this. It's being had. Look to the workers. Look to organized labor. They are providing the path forward. It is not our job to punch down and blame the, the, the ways the ruling class class is ripping all of us off on undocumented workers who are just trying to get by like the rest of us. I will uh, not, I have no patience for that. We cannot be here. We want to give you the, uh, the last word, Denise. And, and yeah, just to, so uh, Max obviously disagrees with you to your left. I, just to throw an additional wrinkle, I kind of disagree with you, but from the right, I want more immigrants here working. I, I the, you know, the wages of the lowest of the lowest wrong workers uh, might have some negative consequences, but we can't like, you know, live in the previous century just in order to artificially protect some people's wages and jobs, right? Because we need to build houses. So, we need to lower the cost of everything. The cost of things are out of control because we can't find workers to do things because it's too prohibitively expensive here for a variety of reasons, including regulation. But that's that's what I would say. We need immigrants so that we can have more houses. We can have the cost of things go down. So part of that is which corporations are suffering from want of profits by when you talk about costs, right? And so if we're talking about regulations, what we should be doing is enforcing the labor movement uh, successes that American citizens have achieved for themselves and their progeny, if that is part of the problem. 
when you come to the United States of America illegally, you are recognizing that what you are getting as a result of being here outweighs the cost of your being here. That's part of the reason you're here. So you can pay remittances back to your home country and all of those types of things. I would say there are plenty of Americans who would like to work. Look at the study from California about black men who lost their job during COVID, Southern California, and didn't have another job even though they were looking. There are 50 some odd million Americans who are wanting to have a job but cannot. There are ways that ethnic unions, right, uh, led by immigrants, do not hire black Americans. For example, I don't know about other Americans, probably so, but the reality is you should not be here in the first place. And by being here, you purchase, you do those things where you get taxed. That's the cost of being here without permission and consent illegally. Four very Higher different Americans opinions on uh, this order. issue. So uh, we're happy to present that debate. Max, Denise, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Take care. And we'll have more rising after this. Earlier this month, a bipartisan bill was introduced in Congress that would ban former members of Congress from lobbying on behalf of foreign governments. New Quincy Institute research finds that this congressional action is long overdue as the revolving door from Congress to lobbying on behalf of foreign interests has, quote, been spinning feverishly. Since 2000, nearly 100 former lawmakers have become lobbyists for countries like Saudi Arabia and China in Washington. Joining us now to discuss is research fellow at the Quincy Institute, Ben Freeman. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for, yeah, thanks for being with us. Please tell us more uh, about this problem and how pervasive it is. We went back and looked at all the data since 2000. What we found was that former members of Congress, at least 90 of them, have gone on to work uh, on behalf of foreign powers and registered under the Foreign Agents Registration Act. And, and not just that, they typically work for authoritarian regimes, countries like China, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, who may have very different interests than the U.S. So, so is this, uh, sorry, the, the bill that's being introduced, would this prevent lawmakers from not only lobbying for countries like China and Saudi Arabia, but what about countries like Israel or uh, the U.K., for example? The bill as introduced would prohibit former lawmakers from working for any foreign government, um, wh whether it was a U.S. ally, whether it was a democracy or, or an autocracy, um, China, Russia, anybody. The, the bill doesn't pick winners uh, and losers. So it sounds nefarious, but can you give us some examples of the kinds of things that they would be lobbying for or have lobbied for that are, uh, present a conflict of interest with Americans? Really, you name it, any major foreign policy issue uh, that we've had in the last 20 years, there's been a lawmaker, a former lawmaker lobbying uh, on behalf of a foreign power related to it. Uh, this includes everything from the, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, for example, uh, arms sales to Yemen, uh, to Chinese surveillance technology, to uh, Russian oligarchs trying to get off a sanctions list. Pretty much any issue that comes up in U.S. foreign policy, chances are there's a former member of, of Congress lobbying for it. And they pursue these, uh, these foreign governments, these uh, foreign interests. They pursue our, you know, our, the revolving door, the, the congressman who's just left, right? Because those people, you know, they still know their colleagues who are in Congress. They can call them up. 
They can, you know, get dinner and drinks, nice steak, talk to them about, hey, yeah, could you actually, you know, ease off this bill? And, oh, what about this? Have you seen this? And, like, yeah, you know, maybe do something of that nature. It's this kind of access and influence that the American people, you know, don't even know the vast extent taking place. Uh, have, I, have I, you know, summarized the, the problem correctly? You hit the nail on the head. Uh, what former members of Congress can offer foreign powers is is access and influence. They have all of their former colleagues uh, cell phone numbers, for example. Uh, they can just shoot them a text when they want to lobby them. You know, they don't have to go through a long, complicated process and they know how to get things done. But they also know how to m- make sure things don't happen, which more often than not with foreign powers, they're looking to to stop a key piece of legislation from happening. They're looking to get somebody off of a sanctions list. And former members of Congress know how to do all of this, and they know the exact people to contact to get it done. So if you're a foreign government, you know, if I were a foreign government, I would say then, and the United States being the big, bad, powerful country around the world, or big, good, powerful country around the world, however you want to look at us at times with foreign policy, um, what I mean, I can understand. So I understand the problem here and I understand that it's it on the surface seems like a really bad idea to allow former members of Congress to go and become lobbyists for foreign governments. But at the same time, I feel like foreign governments would want to have a say in some of the stuff that goes on in American politics because of the impact that it has around the world. So what other avenues if this were no longer allowed, what other avenues would foreign countries have to lobby the United States, for example, from from keep from crushing sanctions in places like Venezuela or Iran, you know, these countries that are bombings and wars and proxy wars. And what would they be able to do? Yeah, even if this bill is passed, uh, these foreign governments, all the types of folks you mentioned, would still have access to the thousands of other lobbyists uh, that are currently registered and and roaming the streets of Washington already. They just wouldn't have uh, the ability to hire uh, former members of Congress or other high-ranking government officials, which recently in the news, um, former retired General John Allen, uh, former president of the Brookings Institution, too, uh, he, he was allegedly implicated uh, in, in doing some illegal lobbying work for Qatar. So this legis- legislation would prohibit folks like John Allen and former members of Congress from from lobbying on behalf of these foreign governments, but it wouldn't prohibit anybody else. So there still would be plenty of opportunities for folks looking for lobbyists to work for them. And of course, all of these foreign governments have their regular diplomatic corps. They have their ambassadors. They have all those formal channels of influence still available to them as well. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I am a little concerned about how um, this is actually implemented, given that I, I presume that there are kind of informal channels at play. And I also wondered if you might speak to the likelihood of this passing. You say it's bipartisan. Uh, are there people who have come out in open opposition to this and what are their stated reasons? I, I'm not aware of anybody who's come out um, against this bill or, or even previous bills to to combat this problem. I mean, I think I, I, I do think it's hard to find somebody who's uh, who's pro foreign influence in Congress. Uh, you, you know, well, it's people very- came out in defense of a Congress members being able to trade on the stock market. So you never know. <laughs> right. That's fair. 
That's very fair, I suppose. But no, I'm not aware of anybody coming out um, uh, against this bill. Um, You know, I I am aware of some of the concerns with it. um, But but I think by and large, uh, this is an important issue because in in addition to everything we've already mentioned, members of Congress, they they also have access to classified information, sometimes highly classified information, Mm -hmm. troop movements, intelligence operations, that sort of things. And so if a foreign power can then just hire that person immediately, there's always a risk of that information information getting into the wrong hands. So, so I think in addition to everything we've already discussed, there's a real national security risk at play here too. What, what is the current state of the law? Because my understanding, and, and this, so this could be wrong, uh, please let us know, is that there is some restriction on how quickly you can engage in lobbying after you leave uh, government, or is that only for government uh, employees rather than elected officials? Yeah, there is a one year cooling off period. And what we see often happen is that that's the guideline. But in that interim, during that cooling off period, we see members of Congress go to work for some of these lobbying firms who are representing some of these foreign powers. But they don't work on that specific contract. They might be, you know, a policy director or that sort of thing, a consultant there. Mm -hmm. So they don't directly engage in lobbying. Um, They just happen to have this fantastic Rolodex. They're just consultants. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of radical on this. I think members of Congress should be banned from Washington, D.C. entirely. (laughs) I mean, as soon as they're done serving, they should have to go back home. You know, it should be part of the deal. Like you come, you serve. And when you're finished and there should be a term limit on it, when you're finished, you got to go back home. You have to go back to private life and and become a private citizen. We should keep them there even while they're in office. (laughs) <laughs> no, then because you want them to you know, because there's there, there's actually an issue with that. And I think Newt Gingrich did something similar where he kind of changed the dynamics of and there's now people just don't get along and they're not friendly. I mean, you want people to be friendly with each other. But at the same time, you want them to go back home, go back to where you came from, go back to be, you know, go back to where you came from, uh, go back to, to private life so that because it's so incestuous. They're not sending you know? their best. <laughs> Well, and, you know, someone like myself, I'm not there in D.C. I'm totally outside the Beltway out out here in sunny California. And, you know, it's just it's so problematic that these people, they go and they serve. They're they're supposed to be working for us. They somehow end up rich as all heck, you know, by working around in these lobbying groups and using their influence. And that just should the whole thing should be banned in some way. Just you have to go back to private life. You have to go back to California or wherever, Nancy. Well, maybe, no, this, maybe this is a step in the right direction. We'll see. We appreciate you joining Hopefully. us in your reporting, Ben. Thank you very much for having me. And we will have more rising for you after this. Disgraced socialite Jelaine Maxwell has been sentenced to 20 years in federal prison for aiding Jeffrey Epstein in the recruitment, grooming, and sexual exploitation of dozens of underage girls. The New York Times reports that during her sentencing, Maxwell showed no discernible signs of emotion or remorse. In a statement to the court, Maxwell called her former partner, quote, a manipulative, cunning and controlling man who lived a profoundly compartmentalized life and fooled all of those in his orbit and described their relationship as, quote, the greatest regret of my life. Jeffrey Epstein should have been here before all of you, she concluded. Critics have pointed out that no names being outed from the trial shows the lack of justice in the system and how deep-rooted this case was among elite circles. And, right, there's a kernel of truth to what she's saying in that, yes, she is being tried 
in his stead because uh, the, the criminal justice system failed to keep him alive so that he could go through this. Right, um, but living or dead, she was still enormously culpable. No, one, absolutely culpable. Has it paid? But she's the always got should Right, yeah. but uh, but there, and, and they would have <laughs> presumably tried her anyway. But she's being tried as a as a stand-in for the man that that was even more responsible and was supposed to uh, suffer justice yeah. and will not. And also, it, she is right that. Uh, I don't want to say she was. She's right, but in her in her contention, that, Robbie says Jelaine was right. <laughs> yeah, great. But he, Jeffrey Epstein, you know, roped in all these powerful people who excused him and covered for him if, to the and in some cases participated in the reprehensible crimes he was committing to the extent that he was able to. You know, he went. He did. He went down for this once. He was prosecuted in Florida. He got an unbelievable uh, deal uh, where I think it was just like house arrest for some period of time and then was right back at it. And then at that point, he was still hobnobbing with rich, influential, powerful people. And that's the part that is crazy. Yeah. Like you, you, people don't vet their, their friends even a little bit, like don't vet them in the in the, wait, were, were you prosecuted for child sexual exploitation? Very publicly so. Publicly? And that's the thing. It's like the Harvey Weinstein story where after the fact, all of these actresses came forward and said, oh, well, we all knew about Harvey Weinstein. We all knew. Mm. And yet you had things like Barack Obama letting his daughter intern for him in a world where everybody knew. And it's like, I'm not, I'm not saying that you know, I don't not imputing knowledge to Barack right. Obama, but it does seem to be like at a certain level of fame and access, everyone has to have known and basically decided it's not going to happen to me slash it's right. not my problem. I'm not the person that's being victimized or targeted, so it's not my problem. But I guess it, and, it's, it depends what the everybody knew. It depends what the, the you knew thing actually was, because with Weinstein, I remember hearing rumors. I thought it was, you know, he was. He was a uh, he was a really he, you know touched people inappropriately. He I, what I didn't more do you know, want, Robbie? Well, to the extent that that like he made you come to his room and give you a massage before he would let you in the movie. I didn't know that. Did, is that what people knew? Well, people, people knew. knew that? I think it was um, uh, Lupita Nyong'o who told a story like that. I mean, like major actresses. She talked about running out of the room when he tried that on her. That's crazy. Major actresses ha- were in that exact scenario multiple times and among themselves I knew guess about you'd it. think if, if the situation everybody kn- knows and the thing they know is that this guy is raping underage people that they do something but they didn't so what do you I guess that's Well I mean and I think that's you're right that that's a good point that she's making there at the end that you know it's it's really frustrating that I said earlier, it's not, you know, she's all we got. She's not all we got. There are many, many people who are culpable and used her services and exploited and raped these young girls. And they're still out there. They're, they were not named. Uh, any number of powerful people from, you know, the Clintons to members of the royal family have been pictured with both her and Epstein. And we all are still going about our business as though... Nothing has happened. There's a serious accountability crisis in this country, in this world, right. when something like this can happen, and and people have no shame about sitting down with, um, you know, Bill Gates and having these interviews the way he's been interviewed about COVID, and and to not take those interview opportunities to be asking him about 
this trial and his knowledge and probing them. Very, very, I've seen a couple of people who have gotten the question in here. Melinda there. Gates has started speaking up Melinda about Gates, it. Melinda Gates, <laughs> you know, it's got good for her. the power of a, of a good divorce attorney is what we're seeing right there. Um, but yeah, it is, it is very dispiriting and there's something that is anticlimactic about this as a, as a consequence. It's a reminder that you can never, you should never totally dismiss conspiracy, so-called conspiracy theorist type people. Gotta pay attention because every now and then something that sounds like a crazy conspiracy theory, right? This sounds like on paper, like a Pizzagate type thing. Wait, there's an island with this rich billionaire who hobnobs with Bill Clinton and Bill Gates and 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 uh, Donald Trump and other all the rich yep. and famous in a bipartisan fashion, all these rich and famous people. And he has a pederasty island where his associates bring underage girls for him to rape, and he has his rich friends uh, involved and politically connected friends are are call are witness are in some cases witnesses or the 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 royal family of England is involved. Like that sounds crazy, but it's true. Well, that's the in thing. this case, it all turned out to be true. I think we disagree a little bit on that, and so because it, it depends on what your lens of what seems unlikely is. The idea of, you know, to me, there's a there's a difference between like a PizzaGate and the idea of people who are very rich exploiting the vulnerability of people who are not, and people who are minors, and people who, for many reasons, don't have anywhere near the same level of power or authority they have. And that's, I don't find that to be conspiratorial because mm. that's just the way the world is. That's the way the world operates. And there, I'm sorry, like thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions of girls and young boys across the, the world who are experiencing this kind of abuse on a daily, regular, serialized way and whose stories will never get told or never get covered right. because the people who are perpetrating them aren't as famous or rich or, you know, don't have as much of a, as much visibility. And so when I do hear that someone rich is a pedophile and has been able to get away with it for years, that actually sounds deeply plausible in the worst way. Mm. Well, I, I guess you're right about that. There is a lot of this kind of abuse, obviously. It just, you, you, you think of it as abuse that domestic abuse, abuse in the home, you know, abuse among people. Not as a crime ring, not as right, an organized. Who are, who are right, not organized, yeah, right? Who, people who enough. are struggling or who have psych psychological problems or other problems and, you know, get involved get involved with, with um, antisocial behavior to an extent that the rich, because of their greater access to material goods, can, uh, you know, avoid ending up in desperate situations or very unhealthy situation, but that's not always true. Yeah. Having greater access to money also can just give you greater access to abusing people as it clearly, and I guess getting away with it for years and years and years as yeah. it did in this case. But it, it just seems like it would have attracted, but it did attract the notice. It, it seemed it, like it, it would attract the notice of people so flagrantly that it, it would not have taken this long to come to light. And Well, there's something to be said about things being so blatant, like hiding in plain sight. It is a hiding in plain sight kind of thing. Yeah, well, here here's hoping that uh, the journalists that continue to cover this story and to talk to the people who are connected to Epstein don't miss opportunities to confront them on what is, you know, an on, ongoing tragedy for the people who are victims uh, of yeah. this. I said again that, you know, Jelena is all we have. That's not true. And I hope that people do their job as journalists and start addressing this accountability crisis. Yeah, absolutely. We'll have more rising right after this. Kim, what's on your radar? 
Well, the organizer of the Trucker Freedom Convoy has been arrested again and is effectively a political prisoner. Another example of Western democracies acting no better than the nations they criticize for similar behavior. This time, it's Canada. Tamara Lick was originally arrested for organizing the anti-mandate trucker freedom protest back in February. Thousands of trucks descended on Ottawa, causing gridlock for three weeks. Apparently, organizing a protest is a crime. And so the Canadian government charged her and her co-organizers of counseling to commit mischief, which is a charge that is extremely flexible and gives the authorities the ability to do pretty much whatever they want. They can label nearly anything they don't like as counseling to commit mischief. And the punishment can range from a simple fine to life imprisonment. The trucker freedom convoy never turned violent. No one was harmed. The only thing that happened was a slowdown of traffic and loud honking that went on through the night. It was a protest, a loud, annoying, inconvenient one. The truckers and many others were protesting the government's policies of requiring COVID vaccinations to work, travel, or cross into Canada. But again, no one was hurt. Nothing turned violent. So it was especially odd when Justice Julie Bourgeois refused to grant Tamara bail. Encouraging, encouraging a protest shouldn't be a crime, but if it is going to be a crime, it shouldn't be one that warrants being locked up indefinitely. What danger is Tamara to society? I can understand the danger she poses to the political establishment, but she isn't someone average Canadians should fear. It was then discovered that Judge Bourgeois may have acted politically. She had run for a seat in the Liberal Party 10 years prior, one of the parties Tamara is vocal against. Now, Tamara's lawyers challenged the denial and won her right to post bail. Her bail came with some conditions. For example, she had to leave Ottawa within 24 hours and couldn't post to social media. She was also ordered not to have any contact with other Freedom Convoy organizers. Well, in late April, it was announced that Tamara was the recipient of the George Jonas Freedom Award by the Calgary-based Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. They were giving her this award specifically because of her work organizing the Freedom Convoy. Now, though the award was announced in April, the award ceremony wasn't to take place until June 16th in Toronto. While the Canadian government wasn't very happy about this and sought to put Tamara back in jail over claiming acceptance, accepting the award was a violation of her release agreement. They argued her accepting the award violated the term that she wouldn't support anything related to the Freedom Convoy. Well, luckily for Tamara, the judge didn't agree with this, refused to put her back in jail, and even warned that this was smelling like political imprisonment. Justice Kevin Phillips said, quote, the courts are not a thought police. We seek only to control conduct to the extent that certain behavior will violate or likely lead to violation of the law. Here, the objective was to keep a highly problematic street protest from reviving or reoccurring. No court would ever seek to control the possession or manifestation of political views. So he was clarifying that the bail agreement of not supporting anything related to the Freedom Convoy didn't mean she couldn't mentally or emotionally support it. The support meant doing anything to keeping it going or reviving it. It meant physical support. But this decision was back in May before the in-person award ceremony even took place. The Canadian government was complaining back then about her just receiving the award and, and accepting it in spirit. So you can imagine how they reacted when Tamara went to accept the award in person on June 16th. Tamara went, and while she was there, she took some photos, as people do when they go to events. Now Tamara is back in jail, and allegedly it's over this photo. In the photo are other organizers of the Trucker Freedom Convoy, and one of her conditions of the bail was to not have contact with any other organizers, but they were also at the event. 
But going back to what Justice Kevin Phillips said, the spirit of the law is to keep the protest from reviving, was going to this event and snapping a photo evidence she's plotting another trucker uprising. The courts will decide. Tamara is being held for six days before being transferred back to Ottawa, where another judge will decide. And the Freedom Convoy wasn't the first and only protest Tamara has been involved in. She also organized the Yellow Vest protest in her hometown and was a leader in a movement called Wexit, which advocated for the independence of Western Canada. It then morphed into a political party, which she was a leader in. So she's a pain in the Canadian government's ass. She knows how to get people motivated and mobile and people follow her. That's considered dangerous to the political establishment. And so the big question is, do you think they're jailing her for it? One thing that I find really interesting about this situation, Brianna and Robbie, is that, you know, a lot of liberals were very against the trucker freedom convoy in particular, and it's the liberal Canadian government that's going after Tamara. And on the same time, when you look at somebody like Alex Nelvani in Russia, who is a very similar type of figure, somebody who is going up against the government, starting protests, starting political parties, um, and you've got much of liberal America very much advocating on behalf of Alex Nelvani, even though Alex Nelvani actually holds views that could absolutely be considered um, white supremacist or white nationalist type views. And the Trucker Freedom Convoy in Canada was accused of being, you know, this just a bunch of uh, fascist white supremacists getting together. That was never proven to be accurate. That was just a smear job. But, you know, where is the outcry for Tamara when so many, you know, go and say, well, what about Alex Nelvani? You know, in Russia, it, it, to me, the two situations look very similar. Yeah, I mean, you're right that we, uh, we, and by we, I mean, I guess the media, the kind of take-having establishment uh, is very selective about who gets, you know, freedom fighter hero status and who does not. And it's based often on arbitrary criteria and is obviously hypocritical in so many cases. I think that's a, that's a good example. So what, so what do you expect to happen next with this woman? Well, she's sitting in jail waiting to be transferred to Ottawa. She's been there for a couple of days now, so she has to be there for another few, another few days. Then she gets transferred. I mean, who knows? The judges at this point, you know, the first judge wouldn't grant her bail. They said that looked politically motivated, so a different judge said, yeah, she, got, she, she can have bail. And then when they tried to jail her again, that judge says, no, guys, come on, this is looking political. You can't do that. Um, hopefully the next judge she gets will be the same mentality of, of looking at this objectively and saying this is just smelling political you guys are just putting this woman behind bars because you don't like her viewpoints and you're afraid of her and that shouldn't be happening in a democracy somebody rises up rallies the crowd gets people on their side that's democracy right yeah the, look the left has been saying this for a long time that cops the criminal justice system as it operates is there to defend capital and quash political dissidents and anybody who would object to the system, which currently has so many people living paycheck to paycheck and on a razor's edge. And there are lots of conversations had by the take masters trying to differentiate why this process is different from this protest and why, why I'm not going to be upset about the, you know, the, the one six stuff, but I am going to be upset about Black Lives Matter and every other kind of thing. At the end of the day, people just need to own their ideological priors and say, I believe that Black Lives Matter and I believe that protesting, even if it breaks the law, is just. There's that the whole principle behind civil disobedience, that there are unjust laws and you shouldn't uh, follow unjust laws and you have to be willing to go to jail and suffer the consequences for that. But that's that's exactly what that teaching is all about. Mm -hmm. And to stop trying to say, well, these conditions were exactly like these conditions or this one was violent and this one wasn't violent. I mean, obstructing traffic is against the law.
right? Now, that, right. I'm not advocating for that, but when the truckers do it, when Black Lives Matter does it, when anyone does it, when these abortion protesters do it, it is against the law. So we have to stop asking ourselves whether this protest is okay because no one broke the law and whether it's okay because we believe in what they're fighting for and that that's a revolutionary spirit that founded this country. And at the end of the day, empowering the state to act against the people is always going to put you at some point or another at the at the at the front end of the barrel of somebody's gun who ultimately is probably not there to be protected in some your cases the, the mainstream media will agree with what you just said and say yes it's important to to fight power civil disobedience etc and then they'll staff all their commentary jobs with former fbi directors mm. and uh, intelligence right. officials and law enforcement mm -hmm. while saying that yes law enforcement is, is bad the criminal justice system is broken now let's hear from more of those people mm. and 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 talk about their narrative for for who is who is committing crimes and who's a hero. Yeah. It's, uh... Well, and what's particularly problematic about this about this situation is that they've charged her with conspiring to commit mischief. So she didn't even yeah. commit the mischief. They're saying she was the protest organizer. And so therefore, and, and mischief happened at the protest and she's now responsible for that. Mischief. I'm against that. Yeah, right? Conspiracy and, and charges have been used, have been abused. A lot of these RICO charges, a lot of totally. these things that have come up to get the mafia have been used in an expansive mm -hmm. way to get a lot of people they couldn't really right. pin a crime on. My people, the mafia, very <laughs> right. unfairly, and, and very unfairly <laughs> hand treated by uh, this criminal justice system. <laughs> Well, it's, right, it's well, always let's... wrong to me. You know, all yeah. of it is always wrong when it whether it's the Chicago seven that was uh, that was implicated for having a protest um, during the Democratic National Convention in the 60s, whether it be the Black Lives Matter protest, whether it be January 6th, whether it be the trucker freedom convoy, the protest organizers are just organizing protests, whether it be yellow vest, whoever it may be. You know, going after the organizers whenever mm -hmm. and sometimes protests turn violent. It happens that things get out of hand. But the organizers should never be responsible for that unless you can directly link that they were actually like plotting and planning in some basement saying, let's go do this, you know, crazy thing. Uh, and that's the big I, th I think that's that's the underlying message here. Indeed. Well, thank you, Kim. Uh, we will conspire to commit more mischief <laughs> next week because tomorrow, Rising Friday's Emily Jashinsky will be joining us for our panel. Uh, I'll be remote, but I'll still be in the show. Uh, Brianna, you'll have the studio to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they can finally uh, turn, turn down the air, air conditioning for me. <laughs> uh, and um, the New York Times argument, uh, the New York Times podcast, rather, the argument host Jane Coaston will get into the big news of the mm. day with us as well. Exciting. Yeah, so, yeah, be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you don't miss any of it. And be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You can download us and listen to us on the go. All right, everybody, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a spirited day, a fun day, right? We had a <laughs> yes, great conversation, we as we, we, we always do. Time. Multiple oh. viewpoints here. Uh, we're like the real view, unlike the view, right? Like we're the real view. Rising. No, no one's, that no should one's be getting the slogan. up and walking off like Whoopi. That's <laughs> it. I'm out of here. All right, guys. We're all walking out of here right now. Thank you so much for watching. See you later. Bye-bye. See you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Kim, what's on your radar? Well, Marjorie Taylor Greene and AOC got into a Twitter fight, and I think
think Marjorie Taylor Greene won. Now, Twitter fights don't typically matter. The place is like high school with clicks, bullies, and idiotic comments. But the substance of their battle matters, so I want to talk about it today. It highlights liberal hypocrisy and calling out Republicans for all the same things they do themselves. It showcases a growing anti-establishment sentiment rising in the Republican Party. And it makes glaringly obvious the failures of progressives like AOC to challenge the establishment as they promised they would. Here's what went down. After the SCOTUS decision on Roe v. Wade was released last Friday, AOC joined a protest outside the Supreme Court where she shouted down the court's ruling as illegitimate. So Marjorie Taylor Greene took notice and even claimed that AOC launched an insurrection. And she said this in a tweet. Now, I want to be clear. I don't think AOC has launched an insurrection. I think she's protesting. And like what happens at many protests, the speaker tries to rile people up and often says things like, we need to fight and even tells protesters where to go for the protest. Sometimes Protests get out of hand and turn into riots. It happens. But the organizers shouldn't be held accountable. And I think we learned this lesson from the Chicago 7, or at least we should have. And I doubt Marjorie Taylor Greene really believes AOC is inciting an insurrection, but her point is clear. AOC has been very vocal about going after Republican lawmakers who called for, who called for or helped organize any protests of the election results. Even though there has been no evidence of any sort of organized effort to overthrow the government and, and that instead it really does look more like a protest that got way out of control, like the many we saw during the summer of 2020, Democratic leaders continue to insist on calling what happened January 6th an insurrection. And AOC has been particularly vocal about it. And she blames Marjorie Taylor Greene, as well as others, for vocally questioning the legitimacy of the election. Yet here she is questioning the legitimacy of the court ruling. And she even goes further. Watch this. So there she was saying elections are not enough, that they, quote, need sand in every damn gear, alluding to causing a disruption somehow. She said, we need to show up, yeah, at the ballot box, but that's a bare minimum. So what does she mean by that? Had there been violence during these protests, would she have been held accountable? If there are threats aimed at justices, which I'm sure there are, is AOC to blame? Did she just get lucky that this pro-choice protest didn't turn into a riot? 
Now, AOC, of course, didn't let what Marjorie Taylor Greene said slide. She clapped back with this tweet. I will explain this to you slowly. Exercising our right to protest is not obstruction of Congress nor an attempt to overturn democracy. If one were a ha- if one were heinous enough person to do that, they'd likely seek a pardon for it too. But only one of us here has done that, and it ain't me. So AOC is referring to reports that allegedly a handful of lawmakers, including Marjorie Taylor Greene, went to the White House seeking a preemptive pardon. But the lawmakers in question deny the claims. And even if they did... Can you blame them? I mean, after the Mueller investigation, one would naturally worry that political opponents would become targets, and I think they have. But AOC is right in that protesting is not obstruction. And her claim that the Supreme Court ruling is illegitimate isn't an attempt to undermine or thwart our democracy. People should be able to claim whatever they want. It's a free country, or at least it's supposed to be. Though Marjorie Taylor Greene hasn't ever responded to the accusations of seeking a pardon, she just couldn't let this dig by AOC go, so she tweeted this back. How about you explain slowly why you won't support a pardon for Julian Assange and Edward Snowden? Then continue to explain why you are a shill for the MIC funding war in Ukraine, or are you too busy organizing baby-killing riots? Now, if it weren't for that last line about organizing baby-killing riots, I would have sworn a progressive wrote that tweet. But this came from a Republican. A Republican is calling for pardons for Julian Assange and Edward Snowden. A Republican is calling out the military industrial complex. And it was only Republicans, 57 of them, who voted no to sending billions to Ukraine. What's going on here? Republicans are increasingly showcasing an anti-establishment flair, and it's why their party is gaining in popularity. It's becoming more and more the party of the working class. Now, it's definitely not there yet, but the metamorphosis seems to be happening. Now, of course, you could claim that they don't mean it, it's just a show for votes, but then you'd have to say the same thing about progressives. After all, these were the principles anti-establishment progressives like AOC claimed to uphold. They said they'd go to Washington, challenge the establishment, and make change. Yet all they did was fall in line, and there's a voting record to prove it. When you compare AOC's voting record to Nancy Pelosi's, she only disagrees with the mother hen 4% of the time. Now, compare that to Marjorie Taylor Greene disagreeing 34% of the time with establishment Republican old guard Liz Cheney. So, Brianna, Robbie, I'm going to ask you guys, what is happening here with this? Brianna, I'm I'm particularly interested in your take on this. That last tweet about Edward Snowden and Julian Assange directed at AOC in the military industrial complex. I mean, (laughs) that was a Republican. That's Marjorie Taylor Greene of all Republicans. What's going on? Yeah, well, what's happened is that the left in this instance, as they have in several other instances related to um, military interventionism, has have allowed some right-wing figures to get to their left. Uh, the, the left has been pushing AOC on this exact issue. I would argue the real populist uh, movement in America has been pushing AOC on this issue since uh, she first made comments about this around the force the vote movement last January. Uh, she was mm-hmm. interviewed uh, at The Intercept um, about force the vote and some other factions that were happening on the left and was also asked about her kind of silence on Julian Assange. She gave what I thought was not a great answer to Jeremy Scahill, uh, where she kind of said, well, I'm not really sure about that when kind of equivocated. He didn't press her on it. And a lot of us on the left are really frustrated that it seemed as though 
you know, journalists who like her uh, were kind of not really pressing her in these interviews to get her on the record in a way that I frankly think would have helped her in a moment like this if she had been forced to reckon with her kind of either ignorance about the issue or whatever reason she has to not want to support pardons for both of those men. However, I think we also have to be clear right about the fact that there are two wrongs don't make a right. I don't see any good good actors in this situation when you have Marjorie Taylor Greene acting like a protest for women's reproductive rights in a tiny little pinned in gated area surrounded by cops in front of the Supreme Court, a sniper stand on, front, on the top of the building aimed down at the protesters as it all commensurate with the, you know, what, hundreds of people who broke into the Capitol, put their feet up on Nancy Pelosi's death and ride it in a way that resulted in uh, the, the death of a protester and of at least one police officer, isn't that right? And all of the information that's come out over the past couple of weeks uh, of how so many Trump insiders knew the election wasn't stolen, communicated the election wasn't stolen, and yet that kind of rhetoric continued to percolate. So I think it can be the case that AOC is wrong on Assange uh, and Snowden, and also that she is right of the rest of what she said. And I do think that she's right that we have to gum up the gears just the way the Republicans have done and able to, in the way that they've done to, to enable this outcome. They have been fighting on every flank. They have been in town halls and local city governments working outside of the electoral system through organizations like the Federalist Society, training judges up, indoctrinating them in a certain particular kind of legal education to get the result we're living with today. And that's all AOC is calling for. And I think it's a little disingenuous to pretend that doing that work, which is completely legal and democratic, is somehow nefarious when the other side has been so kind of blatantly uh, extra legal and uh, nefarious. Well, I mean, she did call the ruling illegitimate. I mean, the Supreme Court is one of the three main branches of government. It's just as important as the well, other two. Well, for specific two, so. reasons. Uh, the reasons are, I mean, some people are arguing that the 2000 election was illegitimate, but even if you don't put that in the pile, that the justices lie. Something you can't say. Something we're literally the 2020 election not illegitimate. We no, have to, to the make 2000 them. election. Oh, right. Some people feel well, that George election, Bush. I'm not sure we're allowed to say that either. Well, <laughs> the YouTube rules, even, I, even though it was uh, not right. some not great stuff. But I don't. I don't think that AOC right. is even making that case. What AOC is saying is that these justices who are on the Supreme Court right now lied under oath about their attitude toward Roe being settled precedent. They basically induced reliance on the idea that they said it was precedent. It's a settled precedent. They've said it a long time ago. I don't think it's going to come up. I don't think it's going to be an issue in order to get on the court and then completely renege on their, their standing. There's also people who look at, you know, the dip, the obstruction to Barack Obama uh, making uh, an appointment, filling in Scalia's seat as creating an illegitimate court right now and on and on and on. So, you know, those are the kind of things she's talking about. I don't think that's ambiguous. She's been tweeting about it, giving interviews about it, and been very clear about what she means when she says the court is illegitimate. It's not these kind of half-baked claims that are coming out of someone like Donald Trump, who at the same time he's saying the, the, the election was illegitimate, was calling around to local electors and states asking them not to certify election results and the kind of things, again, that we've been learning out of these hearings. Mm. They are asking to impeach the justices. Yeah, which uh, is mean, a democratic, so, that's something that you're allowed to do. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, to me, it just it's all hypocritical. I, I don't see it that way. I mean, I, I view it as hypocritical because I just think it just depends on which side of the aisle you're sitting on. 
when you feel like, okay, this is legitimate and this is, and they're making crazy claims. And my claim, though it might be similar, has actual substance to to it. And, you know, I, I just think that that depends on which side of the aisle you're sitting on. I think people on the other side of the aisle feel like their claim is backed by evidence or by, you know, reasonable suspicion. Uh, and, and so I think it just really depends. But I do think that there is something to it right now when it comes to these people that are being prosecuted for what happened on January 6th. They are using their words. They're using their words and they're saying your words incited this insurrection. It was because you said, go and do this X, Y, Z thing. Go march there. Go there. Do this thing. And so I don't understand how that isn't the same. Well, when the people, people like prosecuting are the people who actually went into the building, right? They're being, they're being, right. well, they're not being, they're not being charged They did a riot. That. They right. did trespassing on federal property, right? They're, right. Yeah, they're not, right. uh. They're not, and I don't think they should. They're not putting Donald Trump but in prison for the things right, he, he said that clear, may have yeah. well, But that's what they're it. trying to do. But they're trying to do that, Robbie. I mean, we know that they're trying to go after lawmakers. I mean, AOC has been one of the most vocal saying, pointing out Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, and these others, saying to them, you know, you were the ones who incited this insurrection. You should have to pay for this somehow. So it's Are not saying, just the people that trespassed. It's well, the people if right, that— If they're saying that, they're wrong. I, I think it's fine— to say that, uh, that, I mean, I, I agree that Trump in the speech that he gave was too, infl right before it happened, was too inflammatory and kind of uh, stoked, you know, without, though he didn't specifically tell them what to do. I think it morally contributed to what happened, not in any, I, I, not in a criminal liability sense, but right. in a moral sense. Right. Uh, and yeah, it would be crazy to, it would be wrong to, you know, go, uh, go beyond that. But I, I'm in the same position as you, Kim, on this one, I think, in that, right, I, I, you know, I don't wholly identify myself with either Democrats or with Republicans. I only partly identify myself with some of the things that both of those people think. So I am accustomed, although it is always strange when it happens, I'm accustomed to saying, wow, I, I do think Marjorie Taylor Greene is generally kind of kind of crazy or, or be behaves in a performatively <laughs> edgy, right wingy, yeah. crazy way. It's more the performance of what she does. But right. then, right, substantively on what her views on Ukraine are closer to mine than than virtually everyone in the Democratic Party. And then on the other hand, I, you know, I appreciate uh, I think AOC is, is a kind of more polished, performative person. But then I substantially agree with you know, virtually all of her views. And on something like the Assange question, where I might have expected more uh, more uh, consistent principled behavior. I'm not getting it. So it's uh, right. so then, <laughs> that, but but it doesn't make me say I should throw in with the crazies. I yeah, just, I, I the just, more I applaud people who I think are kind of bad actors in some ways for doing things that are right when they do them, and I and that's something I do on both sides. Yeah, I think I think it's important to not lose miss the forest for the trees here. Someone being a broken clock, right? twice a day, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, I don't think is at all commensurate with someone who has an actual more world view uh, that broadly respects human rights no. and basic interests they're the way all that AOC, to me. The way yeah, that AOC does. And I, 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 I mean, do, it, wait, I'm yeah. sorry, I think it's really important not to conflate these things and pretend like, well, this place is this side and this side is this side, so it's all equal in the wash. It's not. One side has facts and evidence and substantiation. Oh, to, that's not that true. Come, it absolutely is true. It absolutely <laughs> no, is true, Kim. It's I not, do not think Democrats have facts or what, any of this, you know, science can, on their side anymore. Can, They've let it all go. I don't know what science has to do with this particular conversation. The, the, the fact of it is right now, AOC stood in front of a crowd and made the kind of generic Come on, guys, we've got to do this. We've got to fight on every 
front statement that everybody in the history of the country has made when they were rallying for a cause. That is not commensurate right. with someone making a defense of individuals who broke into the Capitol building and, and trespassed and literally broke the law and resulted in what people about the, losing what their about lives. The Black lives. That is Matter not the protests. same the thing. What about them? What about the, what about all of the riots that happened during what, that what, summer? What, how, what's the connection to AOC's statement in front of the Supreme Court? Well, how, I mean, from what you just said, that the, somebody's saying in a protest, this is what it should be. You know, we, we got to rise up. We got to fight. We got to do these things. Yeah, I think that, I and think then that if we've something, been very clear. And, and then Robbie, if something breaks out. This, that people shouldn't be held responsible for saying generic platitudes right. about how we should fight right. and win. Right. And that goes both right. ways. So are you saying that you, you now disagree with that? I'm asking that someone you, like no, AOC? I'm asking you why you think then Republicans should be held accountable like Trump for certain things that were said. I, that I don't. To when did I say that? I don't think that, oh, a, I that Trump what, should go to jail like. for the insurrection. I think that, that there's a reason why well, he I do think maybe now had I agree to go. Agree. I, I think Trump, look, I, people can feel different. I, I think the not criminal, certainly. He should have been held accountable through the, you know, the mechanism of impeachment, which he was. But yeah, I, they, I they would have voted against him. Didn't work. The okay. things he said right before the people actually did engage in the trespassing at the Capitol, to me, are were, were kind of stoking a mob mentality that he, as the president of the United States, right. should have behaved more responsibly. But he should be. He should. He should. He should know better. Right. He was given information. He's, it's one thing to be literally looking at an event in action. And saying, you know, and not using your, your status as the president of the United States to stop it or try to dissuade people and even saying things that are, might be encouraging to, again, standing in the middle of a pre peaceful protest in a, in a protest zone, a limited free, free yeah. speech zone surrounded by cops and with snipers angled at you saying, hey, we're going to have to fight for our rights, ladies. I just I'm sorry. I don't think that that's quite equivalent. Yeah, yeah I, <laughs> I will just agree to disagree on that one. But uh, sometimes, sometimes we do. All right. Thank you, Kim. We'll have more rising after this. Well, up to 40,000 National Guard soldiers could be forced out of service if they do not get the COVID-19 vaccine by this Thursday. Uh, that makes up about 13 percent of the force. And states are saying that they're doing as much as they can to get shots in those arms, but there is that deadline looming. So, you know, my question with this is what is the point of this? I mean, we know that these COVID vaccines are not stopping the spread. We also know that, yes, they do help people uh, prevent se severe di disease in, in people that are at high risk, but these most of these soldiers are, what, under the age of 40? I mean, retirement <laughs> is 20 years. They start at 18, so. And they're in good shape, what? right? Don't they have to be to be in the National Guard? We would hope. National Guard is not exactly <laughs> the same thing as the military. I will say that the list of mandatory vaccinations for service members includes adenovirus, hepatitis A and B, influenza, measles, mumps, rubella, meningococcal vaccine, poliovirus, tetanus, and varicella. I don't know what some of those are, but, you know, tetanus, similarly, it only affects yourself. It's not like they're going around spreading, you know, you stepped on the nail or whatever in the field. That is what it is. But the military then has to pay you while you're getting well. You're not able to work. They have to provide medical care for you. That's a cost to the government. It's a cost to your ability to actually be productive. And so there's a reason why people are asked to get these kind of vaccines to serve. And for clarity, although there, were four, there are 40,000 National Guard soldiers, only 14,000 have refused the shot so far. And when it comes to military personnel, the the um, numbers are much lower with only, you know, people in the hundred ninety seven percent of the military is fully vaccinated. And those who haven't have been allowed to 
um, be like uh, generically discharged with benefits and they can come back as soon as they get vaccinated. So, I mean, is there a distinction between something like a tetanus vaccine and something like a COVID vaccine if it is, is true that the COVID vaccine still helps you not have as bad symptoms and, and that's makes you really more likely it. to come back and to, to, to serve? Yeah. That's not even, I mean, we don't, people, people are still getting sick. They're still taking time off work. I mean, sure, if you're 25 years old, 30 years old, you're probably not going to end up hospitalized, vaccinated or not. That's just the reality. That's the science of it. But, you know, the people that are vaccinated, it's not like they're taking off less time of work. They're just getting, as they're, they're sick. They're sitting at home. They have to wait till they test negative. They can't come in anyway. Even if they're asymptomatic, they can't. So, you know, as long as they're testing positive. So I don't even know what the argument is for that of, well, it's because we want you back to work. And so therefore, you know, for, for, for your boss and for the government, you, you better get this so that we don't have to deal with your sick self. I, you know, that's not even, if you're positive, you're positive, even if you have the sniffles, they won't let you come back in. I mean, in this case, right, in this case, the bosses are us, though, right? In the National Guard, it's their salaries are funded by taxpayers. So, you know, with government employees, my, you know, my stance on this has been, you know, they, they work for us, so we get to decide, you know, what the standards are for their employment. Uh, so, in theory, I'm more willing to have them be vaccinated. But like you, Kim, I just don't really see the point. If you know, if, if some people, it's a minority, obviously, of the na- of the National Guard, it seems, really don't want to get this vaccine. What is the upside to making them do it? Because as you note, it's not really about controlling the spread of COVID, and they're not, you know, likely to be in a, a, a severe risk category. So I just can't, I think, I think the onus, even, even though we're, it's possible to do it because again, the government employees, they work for us, but like, what is the reason ultimately that you have to make someone get it who doesn't want to get it? And I just I mean, don't, the, I just don't the, the, the reason is that getting a vaccine makes it more likely that you experience less severe symptoms than people are unvaccinated. So obviously you can't come into work whether or not you were vaccinated or not, if you get COVID, but the idea is you're not out as long you don't have the severe symptoms. And of course, there's a less risk of hospitalization, which again, takes you out for longer and make, is this something that the military has to support you through if you're unvaccinated? And it's the same, you know, is the argument then that people shouldn't get any other, any of the other vaccines that are required by the military as long as the only impact is on the soldier themselves and it's not something that's communicable? Well, the other vaccines are actual vaccines that usually stop the spread of the virus. So that is the difference. The COVID-19 well, vaccines. Many of these vaccines aren't about viruses at all, like the tetanus shot. Sure. But the tetanus shot does protect you from having a poison run through your body, you know, if you were to step on a nail, for example. So right. there is and, something. Sure. And the COVID vaccine and, prevents you from having worse outcomes and a, a worse incidence of COVID, but the worst symptoms. Only in certain groups. But you have, have to be specific. You'd have to be specific about that. That That's like treating it like it's a blanket. Everybody has the same risk factor. We know that that's not true. That is just not true. People over the age of 65 have a very high risk factor. So, of course, for them, taking the vaccine has helped reduce hospitalizations. Also in men, particularly men who are hypertensive, um, it also does help reduce the risk for them. But we're talking about younger people. I mean, people serving in the National Guard are typically younger um, I, I don't I think there is an age cutoff, even if and retirement is quick after 20 years or so. So, you know, 
we have to be more specific about who these risk people are. We can't treat it like a blanket. Everybody is in the same. And so if you get the vaccine and you're 25 years old, your risk of hospitalization goes down from practically nothing as it is. You know, so I I think that distinction matters. And then to kick out potentially 13 percent of the force over it. What what would you make of the argument that, you know, people in the National Guard, right? It's not it's not like. It's not like other categories of employment, like our, our military, our National Guard, right? They're supposed to be following orders that are given, right? And right, it, yeah. you know, if, if, if there's some of them who have this, yeah, this huge is insubordination. I'm sorry, and I don't think it's an accident. in this way, the, the military has complied. I, I less, our I'm service members sort of have complied, it, and it's but. very interesting to me that it's the National Guard who have apparently, in larger numbers, chosen to rebuke their orders when it's only you know a few right. hundred people in the Air Force, Fridays, a few hundred people I say, in the. Too bad you work for us, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, Friday. look, sorry. I, I mean, my viewpoint on this is, I, I, I take, I the more progressive viewpoint on this, people are forced into the military service because they're poor. They're, they are largely recruiting from poorer families because they don't have the means to go to college. They don't have the, they need to support their families. They have more, they're more dire in their economic situation. So they often join the military just because a person is poor and they've been forced now because of a lack of economic means to join the military. Does that mean that we own their bodies, that we should? Yes, we do, I guess. We do. We can send them off to war and force them to die. Yeah, for I, I don't want there to corporate. be a military at all. I don't want there to be a military at all. But so I then don't, why I, I, would you I'm, argue that if you're in the military, then therefore, you know, you are insubordinate. This is insubordination and you must do all of these things. X, I mean, Y, Z, because I, I, didn't, we said I didn't invent the military. It is insubordination to not follow orders. I, I mean, I didn't invent that reality. I'm just pointing out that we have a Navy, which has discharged 798 soldiers or 2% of the fleet. Um, you know, to date, 93, 99% of the active force and 93% of the overall force is fully vaccinated. There are these, this is an interesting contrast between what's going on in different parts of the force. And my concern right. is this. We're talking a lot about the potential, like what is the upside of COVID when there's, I, I think also there has been a misrepresentation about what the downside of COVID is. And I will say this. I am someone who has been plenty skeptical in her own personal life, who has had long considered conversations with family members about the cost benefit analysis. I have never come out in favor of mandates once. However, I don't want to misrepresent or have a one-sided view of this issue. And the reality is I think there's a double standard for COVID versus some of these other vaccines because of the way that COVID in particular has been politicized. I don't particularly want people lined up forced into a military, forced into war, or forced to take any kind of vaccine. But I'm having a hard maybe, time distinguishing between but, how we're treating the COVID vaccine and how we're treating tetanus, maybe in this case, measles, rubella. Maybe it's fine. Maybe, because there aren't tons of people saying, I don't want to take the tetanus vaccine. And if there were, I would go, okay, maybe. Like, if we have to think about like, what is the reason to, for, to make you do something you don't want to do. Is oh, there this very okay. compelling let's reason? Cancel, let's cancel a lot the whole, of people don't want to do military. it. So I don't know why I would make I, I'm willing to make them because it's the military. It just doesn't seem like there's that like, much reason th- to. This has been the problem with all of this so. COVID discourse. Everyone's pretend like if you had a consistent, there are people who have consistently not wanted to get their kids vaccinated to send them to school, right. who have consistently been part of an anti-vax movement for years. And if you similarly feel that same way about COVID, hey, I may or may not agree with you in a particular instance, but that's a consistent worldview. What is happening right now, I'm sorry, with the way that people are talking about COVID has no relationship, has very little relationship to that ongoing concern about what's been going on in these vaccines. This is, I'm sorry, a very politicized conversation as evidenced by the fact that people who ordinarily would want law and order and respect for the military, who would look at people who didn't want to follow orders as deserters, who would think that obviously you have to take all of 
these other diseases to be active in the field and doing all of these kinds of things are having an inconsistency in the worldview when they now say, oh, this vaccine is a problem. That's all sure. I'm pointing out, not advocating well, why for can't anything we just one let way or them the other. Do that? They don't want to take this vaccine. They're a minority of the people, even in the National Guard. Why make them do it, I guess? Well, they don't have to, and they can resign. Yeah. They, well, we don't have forced conscription well, at then this they point, lose their and job. they can resign. Yeah. Well, lose their job. I mean, that's that's kind of a hefty penalty for not wanting to, to take something. I would say, Brianna, to your point, first of all, um, regarding the military and why 97% of the regular military versus the National Guard, the National Guard is a different service, and a lot of them yeah. are not full-time. Mm -hmm. So a lot of them are working regular jobs. They have regular families and lives, and then they go and they serve the country in the National Guard. So it's a little bit of a different system. It it's not like they're being deployed off to Germany or Japan or some other, or war. Uh, you know, so it's a bit different. So I think there's why there's more hesitancy, I would say, in the National Guard, because there are people, they're more regular, normal people, I would say, living normal, regular lives. Secondly, to your point about why be inconsistent and say you don't want to take this vaccine when you're forced to take other vaccines, that comes down to science and that comes down to the actual data. So people are looking at the data and they look at something like polio vaccine or measles vaccine or even the tetanus shot and they see that the rate of prevention of those diseases uh, is high, even if it only is a disease that's, that affects yourself like tetanus and it doesn't spread to others. Nonetheless, the vaccine actually does work. We're not seeing that. The, the evidence has not been there. They said to us over and over, you get this vaccine, you won't get COVID. That was a lot. That didn't work out. Right, but we're it didn't a work bit out the way they thought. Now, Kim, like it, we all we right. know that it doesn't get the claim that no one here on this panel has ever made has ever made the claim that if you don't, if you get the vaccine, you won't get COVID. This is a conversation about whether the military has a reasonable calculated right. interest and asking people to take a vaccine that in many cases, not marginal cases, in many cases, lowers your uh, the severity of the disease once you get it. A disease which, to your point, the point that both of you make frequently on the show, is very common, everybody gets, sometimes people get more than once a year, and has a debilitating effect. You guys have both had COVID, you know, it's like no cakewalk. It's not, it's not people have friends that I have had who've gotten COVID say, guys, don't get this. Like it's, I thought it was gonna be just like any other flu. People yeah. obviously have different symptoms, but I feel like right. to the extent that there's an argument that the military should exist and should be forcing people to get any number of vaccines, I am struggling to see why it doesn't have a narrowly tailored calculated interest in making sure that its service members are out of commission for as little a time as possible. I mean, I would say to that, there's no limiting principle, however. The government has shown no appetite for limiting principle. If Again, if it was just, yeah, to be in the military, we, we make you take all these vaccines, this is another one. I, I guess I, w I would not have, I don't have a big problem with it either way. I see that argument. I also not sure why I need to force these people if they really don't want to do it. But there's been no limiting principle. It's gone all the way down to, like, children have to wear masks, the least at risk populace for are there, forever. Thought, there's no more mask mandates. How long that are we going to talk about? But wait a minute, wait a minute. No, it, but it was anti-scientific for a long stretch and, of time. And you guys and made the case. It. People still made, kept it. And people, so now you, th and that, people made the case, rightly so, and now there's no more ma children's masks, and you won at the Supreme Court, and there's no mask mandates. So I'm just really curious, how long are we going to gin up a lot of it's not ginning up. They did public. it. They did it for no. a year. It's not ginning up. Okay. So they how, canceled school for two years. I just want to know. So, so two years from now, 
assuming there's no new mask mandates and there's no kids that are asked to be It's masked, already done. I will never allow a vaccine mandate be, because they are, are didn't say be, just a vaccine mandate. They could, kept Robbie, everything else in place. Are we still going to be talking about how authoritarian it is that in 2021, there was something that you didn't like? Because it does seem to me that there's a <laughs> well, lot of... I'm sorry, yes, i got to say I mean, this. Well, but, uh, i got to say happened. this. There's a lot of political no. traction. It was by far scoring. the most authoritarian thing I have ever I, I, gone through I, in my life I, and for lots well, of families and difficult... That's a blessed life you've led, Robbie. If that's the most authoritarian thing you've ever gone through because... It wasn't a the Supreme, life Court, for kids the Supreme Court just stripped my ability to get or... an abortion. So I have a little bit of a different perspective that well, you wait, have in wait, terms wait, of bodily wait, wait, choice. Wait, wait, wait. I, I, and I guess two years from now, I'll say, well, no big deal. I, I look right now I, to your point, Brianna, I understand we can't be angry forever. And hopefully one day we do get past this. The military right now, this is this National Guard issue. These people are facing a mandate and that mandate deadline is tomorrow, tomorrow. So. That is real for them. Mm -hmm. It is something they are facing. That is very authoritarian in my view. Um, and, and so that's a reality for some people. I guess my question back at you, you know, I know we're short on time here, but my question back at you is where, where is the limit for the military then? I mean, if you're gonna label anything and everything a vaccine, at this point, seems like you could. You could just theoretically label anything a vaccine, I, even glad, if it doesn't well, stop the spread. You could just say, well, but it'll limit your symptoms, maybe, maybe. Well, and so if it's that's not the just case, vaccines, we're right? calling it a vaccine. It's not right, just so my, The military constrains your life in myriad right, ways. I mean, that's what's odd about I mean, that. Many, many of which I don't agree with. To do so, a lot of to your point earlier, Kim, military. I'm really glad you asked me this question. To your point earlier, I completely agree with you about the people who have felt feel constrained to be in the military, who it's so that it's so many vulnerable populations that are overrepresented. There was an article that people were passing around recently that was very openly saying we can't cancel college debt or make college free because otherwise they would never be able to recruit people to the military. That's disgusting to say, we're gonna use that as a constraint. People join the military to get education and for healthcare. That's, those are the two biggest reasons. My best friend served in the Navy for eight years and the reason was education, right? So I feel very strongly about this and I, I would rather address the issue on the front end and make sure that we don't have people being coerced into the broader coercive project that is the military industrial project um, and not just the the more narrower the narrow conversation about COVID. But I think we're largely in agreement there. Right. But I guess where I draw the line, as I say, even though they've signed up for the military, they've signed up to fight and die for the country. That doesn't mean I own everything about their body and I can command anything I want just because they're in the military. Sure. I do draw a line. And I, I think it's at the war part. I mean, uh, otherwise than that, vaccinations, I, you know, I would like the military to start explaining themselves as why they are saying a variety of things on our military members, not just medicals and, and vaccines, but other things that they that they require of them. It doesn't make sense to me. And I think we need to have a conversation about the limits of the military and what they can and cannot command of, of individuals. Well, I think we could have continued this conversation for quite Forever. a while, but I'm <laughs> hearing we got to go. So we'll leave it there and have more rising for you in just a minute.